everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. The word cannibal derives from Cannibalis, a Spanish name for the Caribs, a West Indies tribe that were reported by Christopher Columbus to be eaters of human flesh. Although it's thought to be rare among humans these days, it is more common than you might think. In his new book, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, Bill Shutt, who is a professor of biology at LIU Post and a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History, separates fact from fiction and attempts to discover some larger truths about when, where, and why cannibalism occurs. It's published by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill, and I'm very pleased it has brought Bill Shutt to our show today. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, obviously, cannibalism existed for a long time, but it really begins in uh, in human consciousness after Christopher Columbus labels the Caribs, uh, this group of locals he heard of during his 1492 voyage as cannibals? What yeah. was his evidence? Well, I don't know if he had evidence, and if there was evidence, uh, it it might have been evidence that uh, of funerary pra- practices where they were, where the indigenous people were actually doing uh, doing this to their dead instead of burying them they would they would preserve their bones in the, in their homes and um and he went in and interpreted that as as cannibalism was taking place he described them as savage with dog-like noses that they and they drink the blood of their victims uh, he also said that the people had one eye in their foreheads yeah. and yet people believed what he was saying? Yeah, I think this is after they figured out that there wasn't a whole lot of gold in the Caribbean and they were looking for something else to, uh, you know, to, to exploit, and they did. It's been suggested that uh, it became an excuse for treating these people as less than human. Absolutely. You know, when word came down from Queen Isabella that you needed to treat these people with respect, but if they were found to be cannibals and all bets were off, then uh, the next two or three voyages 
uh, were like in, more like invasions. Uh, but they never found these one-eyed, dog-nosed <laughs> Not people. that I know of. Was the professor Dr. William Ahrens? No, it wasn't. Oh, no. He's another one who yeah. questions the, the talk of yeah. cannibalism. Yeah, I met with Bill Ahrens and, um, at, at Stony Brook. And in 1979, when he wrote this book, The, the Man-Eating Myth, everybody was completely freaked out because they thought, how can this guy say that cannibalism never occurred in any organized form throughout history? And when I spoke to him, if you read between the lines now, I think what he was doing was he got people talking about the fact that that the term cannibalism was used as a club to go in by all sorts of flag-planting Western countries to exploit the people that that they met. So let's talk about real uh, examples of cannibalism. First, in Europe, uh, there was uh, something called medicinal cannibalism, and it was practiced in Europe from the Middle Ages all the way into the early 20th century. (laughs) A huge surprise to me, uh, especially given the cannibalism taboo, um, that every part of the human body was used in just about every country that you can mention uh, in, in, in Europe for all sorts of purposes, whether it was grinding up the skull into a powder or, 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 or applying fat uh, to, 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 your, to, skin and, uh, to your skin if you had a skin problem and then consuming it for rheumatism and drinking blood for uh, epilepsy. Now, why did they think that blood would cure epilepsy? You report that uh, people would wait at executions to get the blood. Epileptics would wait at executions to get some of the blood. Yeah, I think this went back to Galen, um, you know, the, the Roman physician, and his whole idea of the fact that there are these four humors, one of them being blood, that are incredibly important in, in any disease that you, might, that you might get, and you needed to balance these. So, so with blood being so important, consuming it was thought to, uh, to have curative powers. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, March 3rd, 2017. So I have been told this is our sixth study session on Vincent Woodard, the late Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. Uh, We are still in chapter four. However, we are beyond the halfway point uh, in the book. I'm not sure how many more sessions uh, we'll have, but we are uh, slowly encroaching on the conclusion of the text, uh, the audio segment that you heard uh, at the opening of the program book that just uh, came out and has been getting a lot of attention since we have been doing Mr. Woodard's text, uh, the audio that we heard interview with Bill Shute, Shut, I think I'm saying his name correctly. This is a white male suspected race soldier. Uh, his book, Cannibalism. You heard some of the things uh, that he talks about uh, in the book and his reason for doing it. It's got uh, a picture of a frog on the front cover. He does spend a lot of time both in the interview and in the text uh, in talking about how uh, cannibalism is pretty common. Uh, in many non-human species uh, for nourishing offspring and that sort of thing, particularly non-vertebrates. He goes into a lot of detail about that. Uh, And then also he includes many of the aspects that you heard in that clip uh, about the racist. Now, he didn't say white people or Europeans, uh, but whites going around 
and alleging that all of these dark people are cannibals and heathens and savages, so we gotta Christianize them and lump them on the head a few times, might need to lash them, we got some cotton that needs to be picked too, uh, and all this other stuff, but just using that as justification uh, for terrorizing and dominating uh, non-white people, that's something that he brings up uh, in the book, as well as European whites' consumption of blood and these other things that were happening up until very recently uh, throughout areas of the world where white people were the majority population. I thought that was intriguing as well, given the context of our current reading. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, folks, I do have uh, Mr. Shute's uh, book, so if folks want to check it out and add any commentary uh, with that as we proceed through Delectable Negro, feel free. With that, we will get started. This is the context of white supremacy, our first audio segment uh, from Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro. Slave masters sustain the systemic aspects of consumption that I have outlined on emotional and psychic levels through cultivated tastes, socially sanctioned appetites, and high cultural values attributed to the enslaved person's consumption. In Jacob's narrative, this cultivated sensibility and personality takes the form of masters who play the role of epicure. Incidents provides many examples of masters who are epicures of certain types of punishments, sexual brutality, physical brutalization, and much more. Incidents of graphic human consumption were, in Jacob's mind, symptomatic of a broader ideology of flesh-tasting and sexual-slash-erotic hungers that the master cultivated in himself. In Flint, this cultivation of flesh hunger and sexual appetite stems back to childhood, and the social consumption of the black mammy. Jacobs describes Flint as an epicure. She means this in the traditional sense of, the, of this word, a person who has specialized, cultivated knowledge in the arts, food, or some other specialized area. The context of this statement is Flint scrutinizing of every single dish that comes out of the main kitchen. In addition to these typical meanings of the word epicure, Jacobs also uses the word to refer to Flint's cultivated knowledge of slave consumption. The cook never sent a dinner to his table without fear and trembling. If a dish was not sufficiently prepared, Flint would have this woman whipped or compel her to eat every mouthful of it in his presence. Literally, Flint would take the food and cram it down her throat till she choked. Gorging and starvation define the cook's existence whom Jacobs described as a poor, hungry creature. The brutality and calculation of Flint's Epicurean punishments know no end. In another incident, the house dog dies after barely consuming a plate of Indian mush prepared by the cook. He refused to eat, and when his head was held over it, the froth flowed from his mouth into the basin. He died a few minutes later. Of course, Flint blames the cook and compels her to eat this mess, which sickens her but satisfies her master. Operating out of a traditional idea of the mammy cook, Flint expects the black woman to have no needs, no appetites. Not only does she cook food, she is food. She slash it is the ever-smiling source of sustenance for infants and adults. The cook-slash-mammy represents Flint's appetites, tastes, and hungers, which extend beyond the table into the flesh and the maternal urges of the cook herself. 
Jacobs further elaborates this interlinking of black maternity and white male appetite through scenes in which the master compels the cook to starve her newborn infant as punishment for her indiscretions. This poor woman endured many cruelties from her master and mistress. Sometimes she was locked up, away from her nursing baby, for a whole day and night. On the surface, Flint operates as a patriarch, as an authoritative figure with the power to chastise and infantilize, infantilize his female slave. At a deeper level of social meaning, Flint plays the role of psychophantic child whose hunger and impulses compete with those of the bonded child. Adult whites such as Flint grew up within a plantation reality that conditioned them to think of black women as endless fonts of nurturing and sustenance. This expectation, according to Deborah Gray White, originated in the mythology of the Mammy, whom whites thought of as the woman who could do anything and do it better than anyone else. Because of her expertise in all domestic matters, she was the premier house servant and all others were her subordinates. Jacobs recalls whites referring to her grandmother as Mammy. White women were generally thought of as ennobled mothers, but Mammy's, a degraded model of motherhood, had to bear the stigma of enslavement and still compassionately mother white babies before their own. Jacob's grandmother had to do this, replacing Jacob's mother at the breast with the daughter of the master, whom she nursed until weaned. Keeping this correlation between maternal nurturing and human consumption in mind, I want to turn now to Luke. Luke's master is also an epicure. He acts upon infantile urges, develops a cultivated taste for Negro flesh, practices a type of sexual consumption, and is a parasitic personality. I mention Flint's Epicurean appetites in advance of those of Luke's master, because Flint, as the model consumer in the narrative, serves as the prototype of the master as Epicure. We cannot fully grasp the import of Luke's sexualized treatment apart from this larger context of Flint's hunger for and his process of glutting and starving the black mother. Neither I, neither I intend to show, can we fully understand the implications of female maternity, female consumption, or black female sexuality in Jacob's narrative without considering Luke's paternal slash maternal relationship to his master. Within the psychology of white males in the antebellum South, homoerotic desire for black men and fantasies of maternity coalesced. In the culture of blackface minstrelsy, Eric Lott interprets the female roles, performed at the time solely by white men, as a cover for black maleness. Her typically jutting perturbances and general phallic suggestiveness bear all the marks of the white fantasized black man who looms so large in racialized phallic scenarios. It makes perfect sense that castration anxieties in blackface would conjoin the black penis and the woman, another reverend for whites of Lactan's threatening other, Franz Fanon argued, is precisely the black male. If Luke is anything, 
He is a sign and source of the type of nurturing and constancy that a mother provides. Luke's master returns to the plantation from the north completely incapacitated. The white man returns deprived of the use of his limbs, bedridden, and often so weak that he could not perform his daily tortures of Luke. He is like a helpless infant who has to depend upon Luke for his sustenance and well-being. Jacob observes, The fact that he was entirely dependent on Luke's care and was obliged to be tended like an infant instead of inspiring any gratitude or compassion towards his poor slave seem only to increase his irritability and cruelty. As we have seen with Flint and the cook, the satiation of the master's hunger is typically infused with cruelty and sadism. Denying the cook's maternal responsibilities, equating her with something animal-like, and making her eat from the dog's dish all serve a singular purpose. These actions serve to feed Flint's twisted, infantile understanding of the black mammy as an endless font of nurturing and sustenance. In Luke, we have another example of the slave nurturing and sustaining the psychic and emotional well-being of the master. For Luke's master, making Luke go about half-clothed in a day shirt reinforces childhood memories of plantation life. Luke is often not allowed to wear anything but his shirt in order to be in readiness to be flogged, and a day seldom passed without him receiving more or less blows. Frequency and access increase the master's pleasure and well-being. He finds pleasure in erotic climax in the context of punishment, often whipping Luke till his strength was exhausted. Luke's rear parts serve as erotic spectacle, and he is often made to bend down, bend over, and turn around half-naked. Sam Anderson, an ex-slave, tells the WPA interviewer, In slavery time, we wore shirts. I wore a shirt till I was ten years old, and these shirts were split up the side. When we ran, they'd sail out behind. Ruling-class whites were in the habit of seeing the slave's exposed body under these gowns. If the gown sailed out behind, there was nothing to inhibit frontal view of genitalia. Duncan McCastle, at the age of 15, had never wore a pair of pants. You had young adults with well-developed bodies running around the plantation, sometimes into their 20s, fully exposed to whites. Perhaps Luke's master sought to recreate recollections of mature younger slaves dressed as half-clad infants. Perhaps he drew from mental snapshots of same-age playmates made to go about half-clad. Either way, dressing Luke in just a day shirt evokes a childhood reality of half-dressed slaves. It reinforces Luke's position of child and his master's position of parasitic adult child. In Luke's master, we have an extreme example of the master's epicurean refinement manifested as blatant self-consumption. Over time, the punishing arm of the tyrant grew weaker and was finally palsied. He devolves into a degraded wreck of manhood, which does nothing to abate his sexual hunger or prevent the freaks of despotism that he perpetrates against Luke. 
It is not enough to simply think of Luke's master as an isolated, freakish occurrence of sodomy, despotism, or sexual hunger. Rather, we should understand him as emblematic of the slave child's sexual, sexual vulnerability overlapping with the nurturing of white children on the plantation. In our scholarly treatments of plantation sexuality, we have tended to emphasize the sexual hungers and desires of masters and mistresses as evidence of adult sexuality. But the rituals and appetites of Luke's master originate from childhood experiences. Connecting this notion of child sexuality to the topic of plantation rape, we readily acknowledge that white men rape black women and that children learn such behaviors from their parents. Yet we rarely speak to the myriad ways in which all white children on the plantation learn to eroticize and desire the slave. Harriet Beecher Stowe, young Eva, cared after and chivalrously admired by Tom, belied an insidious sexual reality in which children learn to associate the nurturing presence of mammies, toms, and uncle figures with incestuous sexuality and unrestrained appetite for the Negro. Stowe conceives of Eva as an angelic source of spiritual nourishment, a Christ-like supper that Tom, Patsy, and even Eva's father gratefully and mournfully consumed. In reality, though, little Miss Eva literally fattened on the emotional and spiritual nourishment received from black nursemaids and attendants. Miss Sarah, for example, a real-life version of the Eva character, pined and sickened and almost died when her father sold Mary Reynolds, her personal slave. The local doctor orders Miss Sarah's father to buy back Mary, and when he does, Miss Sarah plumps up right off and grows into fine health. What medical terminology can we use to accurately describe this process of need and racialized consumption? What manner of child is this, so early conditioned to desire and pine for black presence and care? Neither food, medicine, nor the promise of other maternal delights add flesh and well-being to the child. Only the return of and psychic repossession of her slave makes Miss Sarah plump in a manner that defies medical science and our prevailing understandings of the energetic exchange between master and consumed slave. Luke's master is at base a helpless infant. Yet his punishment and sexual treatment of Luke reinforces the opposite reality. He dresses Luke like a plantation child, repeatedly chastises and punishes him for crimes he does not commit, and physically lowers him to a subservient position that allows the incapacitated master to feel larger and more powerful. As a means of further binding and humiliating the young black man, he chains Luke to his bedside, reinforcing in Luke the feelings of limitation needfulness, and captivity that the master himself feels. Generally speaking, whites like Luke's master cultivated a diverse range of rituals and ideologies designed to mask their own infantile hungers. The fame of Samuel A. Cartwright, a leading New Orleans physician, rested upon this inversionary model of thinking. Cartwright's report on the diseases of and physical peculiar peculiarities of the Negro race, 
refers repeatedly to Negroes as children and newborn infants, dependent upon the fraternal care of slave owners. Cartwright attributes contrived medical diseases such as dryptomania, the phenomenon of blacks running away from captivity, and dysistia, and theopis, a fatigue and resulting stupor from which neither punishment nor the threat of death could wake the slave, to the childlike nature of the Negro. Any person subjected to backbreaking labor from sunup to sundown would naturally, at some point, succumb to fatigue. Cartwright describes this natural response to abuse and exhaustion as an African-based disease. Such, such systematized and ritualized practices of self-delusion and inversion made right, in the white mind, a twisted system of consumptive human relations. Earlier in this chapter, I described the master who habitually inverts his slaves, hanging them by their feet below a boiling fire and flesh-cooking grease. I also described the slave who was literally fed into the coffee gin so that body and machine merge into one gruesome image of rot, consumption, and death. Such examples of systematized consumption take on an even more disturbing hue and significance within the domestic spheres of the plantation. While the rope, gurney, and metal gear constitute the external machinery of consumption, Luke's childhood, excuse me, Luke's example helps us see some of the internal machinery, infantilization, childhood fantasies, nurturing, and parentage, fueling the larger culture of consumption. More of our intellectual energy needs to go toward analyzing childhood and the ideological infrastructure of childhood in slavery. When it comes to the topic of consumption under slavery, we cannot thoroughly engage this subject if we do not, from the onset, construct a teleology of the master that extends back, at least, to early childhood. For it means something entirely different to think about Luke's master as an adult child who is eroticizing and sexualizing Luke, who is himself infantilized and made to play the role of paternal caregiver. This way of thinking about Luke and his master disrupts conventional understandings of genealogy, sex, and relational dyads. Rather than regarding Luke as the slave and the white master as and the white male rather as the master, we have Luke playing the role of child and adult and the master playing the roles of adult child and ruling class adult. Through the discourses of sodomy and excessive dissipation, we know that Luke's master masturbated himself and probably Luke. We know that he probably either received or perpetrated anal copulation. In his weakened condition, it was probably Luke who was made to anally penetrate the master. But what we cannot know when we think solely in terms of sodomy is, for example, how anal penetration might have fed the child impulse, the impulse to be nurtured, and the master or how such an impulse indicated a genealogy of appetites and hungers extending back to childhood. To extend this exploration of childhood, nurturing, and maternity even further, it could have been that the facts, the acts of anal copulation or other sexual acts, reinforced in the master the role of nurturing parent, paternity and or maternity. 
ruling class whites habitually thought of themselves as bettering slaves through bondage and love, care, and compassion, extended to the slave in the context of the most heinous punishments and psychological abuses. Cartwright summed up these sentiments among white. Correlating discipline and the childlike nature of the Negro, he writes, Although their skin is very thick, it is as sensitive when they are in perfect health as that of children, and like them they fear the rod. Continuing these observations, he writes, They resemble children in another very important particular. They are very easily governed by love combined with fear, and are ungovernable, vicious, and rude under any form of government whatever, not resting on love and fear as a basis. Like children, it is not necessary that they be kept under the fear of the lash. It is sufficient that they be kept under the fear of offending those who have authority over them. The layers and overlapping implications of what Luke means complicate and invert gender norms. Did Luke represent a masculinized or feminized child in the psychic world of the master? Did the master imagine himself as mothering and or fathering Luke through daily ritualized beatings? Did Luke understand himself as cast in the role of man, woman, mother, father, husband, wife? Did he signify none of these or all of them in some combination? Was he chosen for particular male or female characteristics? Did his body parts and orifices, mouth and anus, represent only pleasures, pleasure and pain, or were they also construed as sexual organs, female entrances, a womb? I bring up all these possibilities, the combination of bodies, body parts, and gender and sexual implications, to clarify a point. When we talk about the invisibility of homoeroticism in the context of slavery, we are implicitly talking about norms of gender, sex, and so forth that inhabit our scene. I mentioned David Walker at the beginning of this chapter who, in his fiery appeal, correlated the consumption of black people under slavery with the saving powers of manhood. They keep us miserable now, he laments, and call us their property, but some of them will have enough of us by and by. Their stomachs shall run over with us. They want us for their slaves and shall have us unto their fill. Black men should rise up out of abject servility and be men protecting their wives and mothers, writes Walker. Where slavery literally consumed the race, motherhood and the black female womb had the power, in Walker's mind, to resuscitate and reconstitute the race. Using Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man as a reference, Trudier Harris describes the derogatory implications of the black male grandmother, a figure from slavery and Reconstruction. Harris describes Bledsoe, the Booker T. Washington-like character from the novel, as grandmotherly Bledsoe. She says that he approaches the mammy figure in the extent of his concern for the white person who is in his care. His primary goal is to soothe Norton, the wealthy white man, as the precious child 
whose welfare rests in his hands. To comfort the child, the grandmother must show him that the danger which threatened him is no longer real. Examples of the Walker and Harris variety proliferate within African American history and letters. Walker's notion of the saving black maternal womb and Harris's idea of the black male grandmother have much to do with Luke and the topic of homoeroticism during slavery. Yet in a commitment to a dyadic mode of thinking, masculinity slash femininity, consumes slash not consumed, infant slash adult, we have tended to overlook the interconnections and overlaps. Luke's master is a much is as much a representative of the patriarchal institution as he is a byproduct of conventions of sentimental sentimentality tied to motherhood and maternity. Luke gives birth to his master's domination and psychic stability at the same time that the master births Luke, makes meaning of his life and person within a consumptive framework. The discourses of hunger and human consumption also have a constructive function. At the same time that they prescribe and delimit black bodies in Jacob's narrative, they allow us to think more broadly about homoeroticism as an index for inversions, body disfigurements, and transgressions, transgressions of gender and sex norms that recur throughout Jacob's narrative. Hunger and Gender Inversion I have attempted to demonstrate, up to this point, that when we talk about male rape and, more broadly, homoeroticism during slavery, we are implicitly addressing power in the forms of gender, sex, and corporeality. The open-ended nature of Luke's example, the resolute meanings we can never fully achieve from his body, sex, and gender, presents both a challenge and a number of theoretical potentials. We can marshal these potentials and apply them to a broader understanding of motherhood, consumption, hunger, and resistance in Jacob's narrative and 19th century American culture in general. Luke's incomplete story and the incomplete record of homoeroticism within the historical record coincides with a relentless drive within African American history and letters to achieve completion, or at least to convey completion at the levels of gender, sex, and body. It is as if this whole time we have striven against the possibility of a body that is part machine and part corporeal entity. I am referring to the body meshed into the cotton gin, the body that is part machine, part rock, part torso. In Luke, this threat of disfigurement takes the form of reversed paternal slash child roles and body parts that are so disfigured that we can ascertain their shapes and shadowy forms only through discourses of filth, despotism, and a restraining sentimental silence. What would it mean, though, to think about Jacobs in particular and black womanhood and maternity more broadly as incomplete frameworks? What I mean here by incomplete is this. What if they did not fully and neatly facilitate ideas of racial uplift or of female reproductivity as saving? What if Jacobs did not construct black femininity to complement the sufferings and subjectivity of black male patriarchs? 
more broadly. What would be that model of black femininity that did not respond, that did not correct ideas of black taint and licentiousness? Through these questions, what I'm attempting to convey is that in rendering, say, Jacob's personal genealogy as a political response, albeit to repressive forces, we miss out on her hunger. We miss out on a fuller understanding of her sexuality, as opposed to her reproductive capacity. Jacob's sexuality, above and beyond the significance of motherhood and reproductive capacity, has become increasingly more important to ascertain. Yet her sexuality outside of maternity is rarely given full treatment within black feminist and feminist scholarship more broadly. What would it mean to break open, pry apart, and hold in a kind of suspended animation the very infrastructures that have allowed us to pursue our relatively complete understanding of maternity, female genealogy, and sexuality, for example? in Jacob's narrative, and in slave culture more broadly. In terms of infrastructures, what comes most readily to mind is the logic of gender and sex operating through recollections of sexual abuse in Jacob's narrative. Summing up this system, Jacob writes, It makes the white fathers cruel and sensual, the sons violent and licentious. It contaminates the daughters and makes the wives wretched. To break it down further, Jacob plots sons on the plantation as coming under the unclean influences of their fathers. This leads them to rape young black women. Daughters hear of their father's sexual indiscretions, which leads them to rape and violate. The daughters' curiosity is excited and they soon learn the cause. They are attended by the young slave girls whom their father has corrupted, and they hear such talk as should never meet youthful years or any other years. They know that the woman slaves are subject to their father's authority in all things, and in some cases they exercise the same authority over the men slaves. And wives, as more or less helpless victims, respond wretchedly to their husbands' inattentions. In the narrative, a good example of this is Miss Flint's crimsoning and weeping as she has Jacob relate to her all the lurid details of her sexual advance, husband's sexual advances. Missing from this matrix of sexual desire are any references of homoeroticism. In presenting this dynamic, Jacobs presumes that the father's desire run one way from male to female, and that all other desires conform to this rule. With Luke, though, we have a clear example of this not being the case. Luke's master embodies a genealogy of white male desire that runs across, betwixt, and between gender and sex norms. In Luke, the master satiates maternal as well as paternal needs. The young slave representing nativity, home space, and the site of pastoral pleasure. Luke's body and body parts traverse feminine as well as masculine physicality. Not to mention the master, who simultaneously plays the roles of needy child, parasite, and adult tyrant. Jacob's narrative is the story of black maternity and motherhood.
It is a story centrally concerned with evasion and pursuit. The master pursuer and the enslaved young woman who constantly evades her pursuit. In order for the narrative of pursuit to work, gender and sex have to stand still while a framework of erotic desire stemming from the plantation master takes center stage. Ironically, Jacobs reifies the white male paternity that she seeks to displace and from which she endeavors to disentangle herself through a sexual logic in which the master is always the central node giving meaning and motility to all other erotic desires on the plantation. Through this model, we can never get at, get at or make sense of Dr. Flint's playing the role of male mother to Jacobs or his wife's simulating mock intercourse with the young slave girl. Such fluid expressions of gender complicate and challenge our base presumptions about the master's masculinity and belie an altogether different framing of desire. And even if we were to accept that the patriarch was the center and that daughters rape black men, that still does not account for the erotic dynamics between white women and their black female nursemaids, mammies, aunties, and playmates. Before black men, white women had access to black women and black girls. They learned to eroticize and sexualize black women and girls in ways that often had little to do with the sex drives of fathers and brothers. This is not to say that white women did not rape and entice black men on the plantation. They did. But what I'm most concerned with is how Jacobs and history on the whole have tended to overlook the most obvious and more primary level of erotic interaction for white women the relationship between white and black women. More and more texts are emerging that document the relationships among women on the plantation, between white and black women, and between black women with their own communal settings. However, from general studies such as Elizabeth Fox Genovese within the plantation household, black and white women of the Old South, to Marley F. Weiner, Mistresses and Slave Plantation Women in South Carolina, to Deborah Gray's white focus on the black female in Anna Woman, Female Slaves in the Plantation South. The subject of eroticism among women on the plantation remains largely untreated. I mentioned in the previous chapter on Douglas that the only text that I know of to make overt reference to sexual dynamics between women on the plantation is Nell Irvin Painter's Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol. Offering some insight into why black women at the time said virtually nothing about sexual abuse at the hands of women, Painter writes, Truth had two motives for keeping secrets by the time she, was, she told her story. Having come through a libel trial in the mid-1830s, she was concerned about her credibility. She also feared that because what had happened to her was so unaccountable, so unreasonable, and what is usually called so unnatural, readers who were uninitiated would not believe her. Connecting the uninitiated of the past to the uninitiated of the present, Painter confirms that then, as now, the sexual abuse of young women by men is deplored but recognized as common. Less easily acknowledged, 
then and now is the fact that there are women who violate children. We can only speculate about the extent to which shame and the emphasis upon reason and nature have kept from us these deeper realities of black female experience. White women speaking about the hard facts of slavery risk being thought of as sexually licentious or, even worse, as unsexed. For black women, the risk was even greater as whites de facto linked their sexuality with African wilds, physical disfigurement, and the horses, dogs, and other domestic animals, to which Thomas Jefferson compared blacks in his Notes on the State of Virginia. In Jacob's own life, her grandmother serves as an object of white female desire, erotiz eroticization, nurturing, and consumptive appetites. Long before Dr. Flint comes into the picture, marrying Jacob's mistress, selling her grandmother, and pursuing the young Jacobs as his concubine, Miss Flint has learned from elderly women in her family about the erotic utility of and serviceability of the black woman. The scene that culminates this history is another bedroom scenario that calls to mind a number of the dynamics that play out in Luke's abuse. Jacob's mistress, like Luke's master, confines the younger black woman to a room adjoining her bedroom. As with Luke, expectations of sacrifice and service fuel sexualized brutality. And also, similar to the Luke scenario, appetite and hunger enable a fluid sense of gender and sexuality. Let me describe the significant details of the scenario before correlating it further with Luke's abuse and an overarching dynamic of black female consumption. Motivated by jealousy and humiliation, Miss Flint takes Jacobs into her bedroom. Her accounts, her actions rather, according to Jacobs, are a knee-jerk reaction to her husband's sexual pursuit of the young slave girl. She pulls her aside hands her a Bible and says, Lay your hand on your heart, kiss this holy book, and swear before God that you tell me the truth. The truth being that Jacobs has not succumbed to the sexual advancements of Flint. At this point in the narrative, Miss Flint, cons consumed by her erotic obsessions, comes to fixate on Jacobs. She imagines Jacobs as a seductress, assumes her guilty before the young woman can prove her innocence, and then wants all the sordid details which cause Miss Flint to alternately blush, weep, groan, and moan. She seems to blame Jacobs for her degraded state. Jacobs imagines Miss Flint as a byproduct of her husband's desire. She paints her as powerless and pitiable. Yet it is my contention that Miss Flint is the perfect portrait of what Morrison has described as the reckless, unabated power of white women gathering identity unto herself from the wholly available and serviceable lives of Africanist others. The deeper issue, within the confessional confines of the bedroom, is not Flint's pursuit of Jacob's or vice versa, but the utter powerlessness of this white woman who receives neither love, devotion, nor any semblance of affection from her cruel, predatory husband. Jacob does her best to render the white woman in a pitiable, compassionate light in this particular moment, but everywhere else in the narrative suggests that her situation is endemic to 
is a culture of consumption. These facts I will take up shortly. For the moment, we have Miss Flint convinced that Jacob tells the truth regarding her husband. To thwart his sexual schemes, she takes Jacob's to sleep in a room adjoining her own. Jacob's imagines in her mistress a saving presence. However, her feelings of safety and saving are short-lived as Miss Flint begins a nightly vigil that terrifies the young girl and causes her to fear for her life. Sometimes I woke up and found her bending over me. At other times, she whispered in my ear as though it was her husband who was speaking to me and listened to hear what I would answer. If she startled me on such occasions, she would glide stealthily away. At last, I began to be fearful for my life. It had been often threatened, and you can't imagine better than I can describe what an unpleasant sensation it must produce to wake up in the dead of night and find jealous women bending over me. Deborah M. Garfield finds the positioning of the woman's body sexually suggestive. She refers to the mistress as performing mock intercourse with Jacobs. Garfield describes Miss Flint alternatively as standing in for her husband, a type of male impersonator, and enacting a role reversal that stems back to Flint, the patriarch and motivating figure within the incestuous plantation household. Garfield explains Jacobs' motives for her depiction of the scenario as an attempt to replicate the sexual act and to block her reader from its reality. This scenario, according to Garfield, is yet another example of Jacobs following child's instruction and foreclosing sexual details that would offend and taint her female reader. The bottom line, Miss Flint's imitations are still grounded in her husband's physical and discursive presence. My only problem with Garfield's provocative analysis is that it denies the deeper meaning of Miss Flint's erotic proximity, her sexual fantasies about Jacobs, and her sexual agency independent of her husband. Garfield's analysis adheres religiously to the schema I referenced earlier of erotic desire originating in the white patriarch and informing that of the son, daughter, and wife. The meaning of the mistress's transgendered behavior is for Garfield an esoteric occurrence that underscores how, in the master-slave dialectic, roles can be mystically exchanged in narrative but never permanently escaped. In other words, this specter of master's hunger and desire is always present, animating and acting through his wife, who inexplicably takes on his voice and sexual appetite. All this perceived effort, though to disguise Dr. Flint's desire and presence, makes no sense, given as Painter points out, that the sexual abuse of women by their masters was a commonly noted occurrence. I submit that what was truly mystified and deified articulation has been, males, has been female sexuality under slavery, and in particular, erotic ties between black and white women. Painter's comments about Sojourner Truth's situation apply as well to Jacob's, which is that to call attention to the homoerotic interests of white mistresses 
would have undermined the ethos of black women's claim to motherhood and womanhood. The motherhood and womanhood, even of the plantation mistress, had to remain pristine and inviolate if the thesis of patriarchal desire as the primary corrupter of female innocence was to apply. In the reality that Jacob's foreground, white women did not corrupt white women or learn to eroticize black women through primary relations with mammies and other caretaker figures. Painter notes that less easily acknowledged then and now is the fact that there are women who violate children. Yet with the plantation conceived of by whites as a household and blacks always as infantilized and eroticized infants, how could the mistress not find herself seduced by this sex-slash-power dynamic that was reinforced everywhere around her. As Morrison asserts, how could she not hunger, become reckless, and learn through osmosis the process of gathering identity unto herself from the completely available and expendable resource of the female chattel slave? Beyond the basic issues of sex and violation, Morrison finds in the white, white mistress-slash-female slave dialectic the coordinates of an intensely important moral debate. Morrison's observations call to mind the 19th century debate about Christian cannibalism. Such a notion did not easily translate into concept and terminology. By the late 1800s, white identity on the plantation was so deeply wedded to unspeakable practices of consumption that whites themselves could not see and therefore could not name the specter and terror of the emerging white civilized cannibal. Even the idea of child molestation forwarded by Painter does not convey the dynamic overlay of consumption upon sex, or con of consumptive hungers driving the erotic interchange between Miss Flint and Jacobs. We cannot separate Miss Flint in the bedroom, acting as both master and mistress. From Miss Flint, the parasite and consumer practice in the methodology of slave consumption. Miss Flint was well versed in the language and ideology of consumption. She threatened her slaves with skin peeling and pickling. She spit in all of the pots after the cook had finished the big house meal in order to prevent the cook or any other slave from eking out their meager fare with the remnants of the gravy and other scrappings. She rationed out the food and starved her slaves as a means of maintaining psychic and emotional control. Providing further insight into her character, Jacob observes, Miss Flynn, like many Southern women, was totally deficient in energy. She had not strength to superintend her household affairs, but her nerves were so strong that she could sit in her easy chair and see a woman whipped till the blood trickled from every stroke of the lash. Miss Flint lacks power and vitality, yet strongly demonstrates these traits in the context of the torture and subjugation of black females. That will do it for audio segment number one, Context of White Supremacy, Gus T. Renegade. If you have thoughts you would like to share, the delectable Negro... Uh, we are still in Chapter 4.
are still in chapter four. Uh, we'll wrap that up and move on to chapter five during the second audio segment. Uh, if you would like to participate, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone uh, to share your views, thoughts, observation, observations, uh, you can use the free Vope line. Uh, it's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, Click the link on the left side of the page. It'll say uh, free vote line. Click that link. It will open a small window on your screen. First line, it is a drop-down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can use a real name, nickname, you can press random keys. Uh, once you get all of that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. Uh, it is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. <laughs> press star six. You'll hear the little prompt or what have you. Press 1, and we will get you on the line. Uh, again, getting close. Uh, we should have, I think, max three, four uh, sessions before we are all done with the book. So be thinking of major themes, conclusions as we go down the home stretch. Uh, and we'll get to some of the folks who dialed in right now. Uh, let's see. Uh, Roz, Mr. Demery 4, uh, you're both with us. I'll add other hands as I see them. Uh, if you all have thoughts to share, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus. Uh, good evening to Mr. Demery Four and the other callers and listeners. Um, this particular reading was very, very intense, and I had a lot of notes from my first reading of it, so it's just interesting to be at this part in the text. Um, I wanted to touch on the clip you played earlier with uh, the interview with Mr. Shoot, Shut, Mr. Bill Shut. Um, I'm glad that they did talk about the Carib Indians because that, that whole ideology of uh, my ancestors being cannibals was something that has been propagated for a very long time. And it's completely inaccurate. The, the uh, Kalina people also known as Caribs were not cannibals. They were just more aggressive. You had the so-called Taino or Arawaks really is their name. And you had the, uh, the Carib Indians and the Carib Indians were much more 
um, warrior oriented as far as their um, their behavior, whereas the Arawaks were very easily wiped out because they had a very peaceable nature. Um, white people had a very very hard time with uh, trying to eradicate the Caribs. And in some areas, you had basically maroon settlements of Caribs that were able to fend off white people. Um, so that was part of the reason they got their reputation for being cannibals. And also, like I said before, when uh, they started to see the heinous acts that white people were committing on their people, they started to barbecue them. And um, that was also something else that lent to that uh, that particular lie that has been told for a while about excuse me, about the Carib Indians. Um, so I, I really like that part of the text and I mean that part of the uh the, the show in the beginning, so I appreciate it. And um you should have gotten your package today. I did see that it was delivered, so I don't know if you're able to pick it up, but um if you didn't it should be waiting for you. Um to get to the text, uh, okay. I wanted to start on page one forty five. Um uh he writes Within psychology of white males in the antebellum South, homoerotic desire for black men and fantasies of, ma- of, uh, excuse me, of maternity coalesced. In the culture of blackface minstrelsy, Eric Lott interprets the female roles performed at the time solely by white men as a cover for black maleness. And what's really striking about that particular section is the fact that uh, white people did homoeroticized black males and try to basically psychologically and sexually abuse and convert them into their sick, twisted, uh, anti-sexual variation of what a female would be. And for them to perform in blackface and also play the role of a female really speaks to the fact that the whole homoeroticism and, and the whole anti-sexual behavior, homosexuality is a seriously serious mental illness. And with white people, it manifests in a very acute form in these sorts of things that that they get into, these deviant behaviors that they get into, and then they project their own sick, twisted sexual uh, fantasies onto their victims and then try to make it as if those victims are the origins of those behaviors instead of they being the origins of those behaviors. So it's just really interesting. Um, On page 46, towards the bottom, he writes, in Luke, we have another example of the slave nurturing and sustaining the psychic and emotional well-being of the master. For Luke's master, making Luke go about half-clothed in a day shirt reinforces childhood memories of plantation life. Luke is often not allowed to wear anything but his shirt in order to be in, the, in readiness to be flogged, and the day seldom passed without him receiving more or less blows. Frequency and access increase the master's pleasure and well-being. Excuse me, he finds pleasure and erotic climax in the context of punishment, often whipping Luke till his strength was exhausted. Luke's rear parts serve as erotic spectacle as he is often made to bend down, bend over, and turn around half naked. Now, this all lends to a deep, sick, uh, pedophilic culture, simply because you, they, later on they talk about um, adults who were wearing just a shirt or basically running around naked until their 20s. They didn't even know what it was like to wear a pair of pants or underwear or anything. So imagine in the wintertime, they're running around with just a shirt on. Then you're being groped and and sexually terrorized and and, um, exploited in, in, in the form of being made to run around in front of these white people and bend over so they can see you. There's a serious, sick, pedophilic undercurrent to everything that they do. And in that pedophilic undercurrent, there's also a homosexual undercurrent that's just, just revolting. 
And now we're in a day and age where they're trying to normalize this stuff in a way that has been unprecedented in human history, I think. And um, I just find that to be a very interesting uh, aspect of what he gets into. Um, on page 150, he says, the layers and overlapping implications of what Luke means com- complicate and invert gender norms. Did Luke represent a masculinized or feminized child in the psychic world of the master? Did the master imagine himself as mothering and or fathering Luke through his daily ritualized beatings? Did Luke understand himself as cast in the role of man, woman, mother, father, husband, wife? Did he signify none of these or all of them in some combination? Was he chosen, excuse me, was he chosen for a particular male or female characteristics? Did his body parts and orifices, mouth and anus, represent only pleasure and pain, or were they also construed as sexual organs, female entrances, a womb? Again, I don't know what he means by that. (laughs) That's something where the author seems to be just playing up uh, the whole culture of of anti-sexual behavior. And what I said in the last show in regards to um, my wife's close friend, who has referred to his anus as a vagina. So it's just something that's in, that I've seen in modern homosexual culture that is being translated now into this, this particular antebellum scenario for Luke. And I just think that the author is um, basically grasping at straws in regards to giving this impression in, in, through that portion of the reading of the text. Um, I'll, one last thing before I get off, and I did have a couple other things. Hopefully I can speak again later. Um, on page 153, he writes, daughters hear of their father's sexual indiscretions, which leads them to also rape and violate the daughters. Let me, excuse me, leads them to rape and violate. The daughters' curiosity is excited, and they soon learn the cause. They are attended by young slave girls whom their father has corrupted, and they hear such talk and should never meet that should never meet youthful ears or any other ears. They know that these women slaves are subject to their father's authority in all things, and in some cases they exercise the same authority over the men slaves. So, danger of white women, very uh, made very plain and very evident, and how basically they're learning this behavior from their fathers and coming from a background where, like Dr. Kamal Kamban says, they suffer from post-traumatic cave syndrome where the women would be left in the caves and practice lesbianism, um, it makes sense because this seems to be triggering, watching or hearing about their father's exploits is triggering their filthy cave lesbian behavior that they're then taking out on the black women who, whose lives that they dominate and control. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Appreciate that, Ross. Oh, yes, sir, Mr. Demery Ford. Go right ahead. Yes, greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings to Roz and the other callers, listeners. Uh, <clears throat> what stood out to me was uh, when he went back and forth from uh, Harriet Jacobs' narrative, uh, speaking of Dr. Flint as an epicure, and then uh, defining it. You know, she means that in the traditional sense of this word, a person who has specialized, cultivated knowledge in the arts, food, and some other specialized area. The context of this statement in Flint's scrutinizing of every single dish that comes out of the main kitchen. In addition to these typical meanings, the word epicure, Jacob also uses the word to refer to Flint's cultured knowledge of slave consumption. 
And then if you think about that, um, all of the time and effort and resources it takes to become known as an epicure or uh, savoir, you know, some person that is highly uh, specialized in <clears throat> in identifying certain things and tastes, and to use that same dedication towards inflicting uh, punishment and uh, physical abuse upon a person, it shows that Jacob was socially consumed. You know, through her narrative, she described the inhuman uh, ways that uh, Mr. Flint would <clears throat> terrorize her, you know, constantly uh, trying to seduce her. And I'm not sure whether he actually could, you know, uh, was successful in getting her, but it drove the poor woman to um, some other white man's arms. And, and then she was separated from her kids for, you know, I guess it was years hiding in somebody's attic. But the whole thing is, um, I found it uh, strange that uh, Miss uh, Jacobs would mention um, Luke's abuses, you know, and although he suffered from Stockholm syndrome, being uh, abused by his slave master, and then when the slave master came back weak and he nursed him back to health, you know, and then some way imply that uh, Luke may have been uh, complicit in some of those actions, but if you understand the way that, that the dynamics of that syndrome, then you can understand that a little better. And then I did not uh, buy the fact of the slave master's um, ideas about the uh, mammy figure and his uh, childhood affecting the way that he behaves as an adult. I think that you can see that in the movies too, when you see the pathological behavior of whites, then there's uh, uh, an effort to try to explain away these horrific uh, acts, you know, in some type of uh, uh, pseudo scientific, you know, uh, solution, but it's just a twisted mind and then um, actually perfecting, you know, those cruelties. Uh, and also, um, uh, Harry Jacobs did not mention uh, female rape, and then I think the book alluded to the fact that she was uh, sort of coerced by Charles, who was a white woman, to uh, uh, not bring out those incidents of female rape when uh, that's exactly, you know, what it was that was happening and even uh, happened to her. Um, draw me my line. Uh, one last thing. The Oh, I mentioned that about the uh, childhood. But I'll give somebody else a chance. Okay, thanks for taking the call, man. Appreciate that, Mr. Demery. For uh, we have other folks that we have not heard from. If you have a hand up, line should be open. Yes, ma'am. Greetings, everybody. This is Emmy. Um, 
a couple of things that I wanted to talk about from this passage specifically. A little bit more volume, please. A little bit more volume. Okay, let me do this. Is this better? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, Makes it harder to look at my notes on the phone, but let's do it this way. Um, The first one was the white woman spit in the pots after everyone in the big house ate. And I just think that that's like, it was almost, I laughed. It was laughable because you assume that we didn't already spit in the food that you just ate. Like, I just, I mean, I'm always fascinated. I mean, this is, to me, it's showing what it means to be black. To be black means to be a nigger. To be a nigger means that you're not human. If you're not human, there's no way that you could have thoughts and think about your own things. And so, I mean, it didn't, I'm sure it did not take many times of people realizing that she was going to spit every time and just be like, well, I'm spitting right now or do all kinds of things like that. Um, We're not without our own behaviors. And like, if you punishment and those behaviors move some other place, I just, I kind of just laugh at that because white women, Moving on. So white women, I was very grateful uh, for this section of the text because um, before the cows, I mean, it was like I looked at white women, but not the way that I look at white women now. And um, this this section of the text really just highlighted how deviant and uh, psychopathic white women are as much as their white male counterparts. It sent chills down my spine that after her husband didn't want her and wanted Jacobs, she said, well, I'm going to make you sleep next to me. And in the middle of the night, this white woman would be hovering over Jacobs, whispering and saying things in her ear. I mean, like, I'm not going to go so far as to say whether that was like a simulation of sex or not or whatever it is, but I know that it is uh, ter- like psychologically terrorizing um, for Jacobs, but whoa for white women. And that, I mean, and when I say whoa, that's not very articulate, um, provides a view of white female psychopathology that is absolutely fascinating to me because it's so perverse and scary and creepy. And it had me thinking about horror movies. Cause I used, I don't do horror movies at all. I did like the walking dead. I'm not going to lie up until season season seven and they just took it overboard and I stopped. Um, but never. And I always used to wonder what is it about white people that make them love horror movies like this? Like, no other people, even once we have the technology, are producing horror movies. Like, no one around the world is just coming up with horror movies all the time. So anyway, that's just, like, their their safe place is that horror space. And so then it also had me thinking about um, how do you – because sometimes it becomes a little difficult to be, like, some people want to provide the argument, well, all white people – it's not like there's a white handbook, which is not true – um, that where white people can read and figure out how to do all of these things, but to to terrorize black people. No, but if it's already in you and the power dynamic is there, it comes out in whatever way 
you're going to do it, which is why I dislike psychology in the way that they teach it, because white people always want to talk about everybody else, but they're not ever talking about themselves. And so then it, then it had me thinking about, well, you know, like, in all honesty, the white people that came here were not like the, you know, top echelon white people. These were murderers, rapers, you know, people that the other white people didn't want. Set, let them go across the world to terrorize everybody else, set up their own places so they didn't have to get rid of them, or they got rid of them without having to kill them. And then those are the white people that are here. Their offsprings who were given a power dynamic for a very long time. So that behavior, one could argue, like already having been genetic before they got here, because they want to argue that certain behavior patterns are genetic and they try to make it seem like it's everybody else, like black people are going to be more prone to alcoholism or more prone to aggression and all these kind of things. But for a very long time to have that power dynamic and to be that sexually deviant male and female, that is at a, like another layer of genetics that I was like thinking about. And I was grateful for it because it had me have those thoughts. Um, one second, I had to look at the notes. Um, and then S&M. I don't know too, too much about it, but I know enough about it that when in this particular section of the reading, um, Luke, I believe it was, was chained to the bed. I mean, one level I've heard, I'm, again, coming to grips with it. Black means nigger, nigger means not human, animal. So you lay by the bed and you drink from a bowl, like treat you just like a dog. You know, white people love their dogs. White people love their niggers. Same thing. Um, but at another level, chained to the bed is a way that white people perform their sex. I don't know, like, I, you know, I'm very interested in how, like, all that, like, why, but that's something. So to me that, like, when I, when I heard the passage, I saw an S&M scene that, uh, and even if you participate, like, shaping behavior doesn't take long. You can shape any organism to do something if you reward it. Have enough patience and reward certain behaviors, that organism will and that will do those behaviors because they want to avoid punishment and get the reward. So if you participate more willingly, maybe you won't be punished and you might get whatever reward. So and that's how you shape the behavior in a people. And I think like over so long that that's what we're looking at. And I think that's what the black men have subconsciously like taken on and learned. Some have spoken about it, but I think like it's just endemic or pandemic or just like widespread at this point that doing this, I'm going to get these things. And, uh, and I don't think that, because when you have like, it's not like today when you have TV and all these other distractions, these, especially white women didn't have anything to do, but obsess about their white husband raping all these women and doing all these things. So, you know, become master manipulators and psychologists and stuff like you don't, they didn't have the same type of distractions. So that's what they did, became masterful at sexually terrorizing everyone. Um, that's all I have for now. Thanks. That's uh, Emmy. Uh, do we have anybody we have not heard from, have commentary they wanted to make sure they got in? Anyone we have not heard from? Yes, Matt. Can I speak? Yes, sir. Yes, greetings to caller and the uh, callers and the host. This week's reading, uh, very interesting as well. I, I did also note the relationship with the uh, white woman, Ms. Flint, and how she terrorized uh, Jacob. 
I also found the parallel to modern day situations where non-white females and males are exploited by, um, in fact, <laughs> just just kind of by the way. I mean, matter of factly, I, I just ran into a non-white um, um, male who is is in a relationship with a, a white female, and the terrorist. Uh, is, is is well at work. So this this dynamic still continues till this day, which I, I feel is telling um, that we're studying a case in it. I found it I found it interesting that the author uh, the author continues to go back to Luke, and um, although I you know he said that he was going to uh, dive into Luke's and Jacob's narratives, I find it. Um, telling that he continues to return to it to find um, parallels and information and pull information from. I, I The gender fluidity piece, where he talks about gender fluidity, I find it very confusing. And as the book goes on, I find myself being able to uh, being able to process information a little bit better. And the gender fluidity to me, it, it definitely sounds more confusing than anything else, because how can someone how could someone uh, <laughs> be developing a characteristic of their gender or developing their self or finding themselves, whatever that means, when they're being terrorized and abused? And, I mean, when you have to masturbate someone and then someone – and that that's under the force of, of death, under the penalty of death, you're forced to masturbate another male, and then someone comes to you and says, Hey, you had gender fluidity issues. You're like, no, I was I was gonna get killed. So a lot of the survival mechanisms of the non-white males to me are being interpreted as some type of gender fluidity, and that to me is is absurd. And I I, I believe it was brought up earlier that the author might have been, um, you know, might have been a a uh, uh, into anti-sexual activity. I, yeah, I, I can't say for sure, but with that type of logic, I could see how that could, um, you know, where did it come from? Where, where did you get that from that you'd believe that this person is dealing with gender issues when they're being terrorized? So that to me was very, uh, very telling, uh, being able to try to decipher why the author would, would continue to use that. Also, I believe a caller spoke about the, the shirt and running around without clothing. Um, it, it's very interesting that in a lot of places called third world uh, children do not have a lot of clothing to this day and white people you know I, I know some people who just went to Kenya recently and everybody wants to take pictures with half naked uh, half naked children these were non-white individuals and white individuals but everybody wants to take pictures with these and so this is still happening today and then that's why it it, it it draws, I mean, it, it pulls at me on the inside to, to to feel that this is this hasn't ended. It has just changed form. Uh, and I'll, I'll save my comments for later. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. If other folks uh, have commentary you would like to share, uh, we still have uh, about 20 minutes or so before we get to the second audio segment. So if it's something you want to get in. Uh, thought, question, uh, something you've heard from listeners. Uh, we have time. Just don't wait till the last minute till we get close to beginning the second audio segment. Uh, some of the things uh, that stood out 
uh, from this week's reading. Uh, the beginning, dogs are treated better than black people. Um, the segment where the enslaved black female, uh, where Dr. Flint makes the cook eat the food, I guess, that the dog refused to eat or wouldn't eat or what have you. And it's got all this froth coming out of his mouth or what have you. Uh, and again, I feel like I have heard incidents like that before where... Uh, a white person's dog, a black person was supposed to be charged with taking care of it or what have you and they didn't do the correct thing or they didn't fluff the dog right or whatever and so the black person got you know, brutalized, uh, maimed, killed, something of, of that nature. I feel like I've heard those sort of anecdotes uh, frequently uh, with uh, racist man, racist woman just showing the, the value of black life, lack thereof. Um, the segment, I've been I've been the whole time we've been reading this, and particularly this week, because uh, he mentions when uh, they're referencing all these other scholars and their work and what they thought about, you know, what Frederick Douglass had to say, or Alato Equiano, or uh, Harriet Jacobs, many of the other folks that we've talked about. Um, he's mentioned uh, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter before, and Dr. Nell Irvin Painter was a guest on The Cows back in 2000. Ten and some of these issues, we talked about her book, The History of White People. Uh, she is a you know renowned scholar, has written extensively about uh, the history, U.S. history, slavery, uh, black people specifically, and some of the things that we talked about when she was on the program. It referenced the thread, the history of pedophilic behavior uh, and homoerotic behavior. We talked about that specifically. There's a segment I used to play quite a bit. I made a sound clip where she was talking about how a lot of the European statues and what have you, they were of young children, uh, young male children, young boys. Those were a lot of the statues and you'll still see a lot of those, but that was the ideal of beauty. So you can imagine, you know, how that, you know, is going to be manifested. If that is your sexual interest, you can imagine how that is going to be exemplified when now you can come over here on a plantation and you have got, you know, Negroes just running everywhere. And as you all have touched on that on these plantations where whites can say, well, hey, we're not going to give you so many, uh, but, you know, maybe one shirt for the year, you know. Uh, and so you won't have any clothes. Maybe the children are just nude. Uh, you can imagine uh, how that pathology is going to be manifest in that sort of an environment. And that's one thing I would say is comes up in this book and it should come up all the time. We process uh, enslavement of black people uh, that a lot of times at the core, what we're talking about is child rape, uh, child molestation. On uh, a lot of these instances, because a lot of the, the black people in this time period that are being sold and abused and enslaved, they're young, they're children. You know, we're talking about folks that are 10, 11, Sally Hemings just wrote about that. Just talking about that. Back to the tech. And again, with Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, I've even been thinking it might be constructive to have her back on the program uh, because she's mentioned so uh, extensively throughout this text to, you know, get some of her thoughts uh, on what she thinks of, you know, the way that her work was included in this. And would she rethink anything? What does she think of some of the conclusions that they uh, have come to? It might be constructive to speak with her and for folks to remember that, you know, she is unfortunately married to a white man. Moving forward, I uh, also thought it was uh, important. <clears throat> I, thought, I think this notion of, uh, I just wrote about this as well, uh, white children. They're not ignorant about race, uh, racism, white uh, children. They're picking up this information all the time. Mr. Fuller has talked about that. I thought that that was extremely significant. Him talking about as a child, you would begin this process of becoming an Epicurean, of 
you know, consuming Negras, uh, your taste for Negra flesh uh, would begin as a child because the same thing that we would say right now, 2017, you're seeing your parents, they're going out and lashing Negras all day long and raping black people and all the other things that they get to do uh, to Negras. So you want to do the same thing. Uh, and I think he has talked about that consistently. He talked about that with uh, Alato Equiano, the young uh, white boy that he was on the ship with, that he is learning the process of being a racist man. Uh, and Alato Equiano, he is learning the process of being the Negro for this white man. Uh, but he, he brings it up again this week that they're learning even the sexual component uh, because that's what's happening. You're seeing that all around you. This is what I am supposed to do. Uh, I'm even reminded of uh, Kindred where you see the same thing, even though that's a, a novel uh, written by a black female, uh, Octavia Butler. Um, let's see. Yeah, I thought this was a, a significant paragraph where she says, again, getting back to that child thing, uh, where he says, we know that he probably either received or perpetrated anal copulation, talking about Luke. Uh, in his weakened condition, it was probably Luke who was made to anally penetrate the master. But w what we cannot know when we think solely in terms of sodomy is, for example, how anal penetration might have fed the child impulse, the impulse to be nurtured in the master, or how such an impulse indicated a genealogy of appetites and hungers extending back to childhood. I immediately thought Dr. Welsing moment, uh, her saying that black people are the parent people. Uh, and everything, uh, her theory in terms of uh, white people being albinos, being kicked out of the continent and all of that, uh, and being upset, uh, whites being the offspring of black people, being upset at their parents and the creator. Uh, everything in that paragraph uh, reminded me of Dr. Welsing. I was very curious as to how she would process this, if this, you know, aligns with her uh, theory of white genetic annihilation and, and whites uh, compensating for their lack of melanin. Uh, let's see, moving forward. I thought this was really important, uh, where he says Harriet Jacobs imagines uh, Mrs. Flint as a byproduct of her husband's desire. She paints her as powerless and pitiable, yet it is my contention that Mrs. Flint is the perfect portrait of what uh, Toni Morrison has described as the reckless, unabated power of a white woman gathering identity unto herself from the wholly available serviceable lives of Africanist others brilliant section and I thought so uh, important let racist woman stand on her own uh, she is not just serving as a proxy uh, for the desires and pathology of racist man she is her own deviant being unto herself let's give her her individual due uh, because I see this trend happening as well even in 2017 but I think that's important uh, that, that, that this uh, what Emmy talked about before and the, the hovering uh, over one and, and who knows uh, what type of information has been uh, omitted uh, where this just doesn't get discussed in fact we had Valerie Jackson on the program in 2012 uh, we had this was we had two guests on the same program Dr. Darren Smith was the guest for the second part of the program but Valerie uh, Jackson she was on we talked about her novel Plantation obviously this is fiction but uh, and she opens the book with a scene of a white male sexually abusing a black child explicitly that's how the book opens and then as it continues she has a scene where in fact I might even start with that next week uh, for the opening audio segment but she has a scene where it is a white uh, slave mistress on a plantation and she goes and begins to uh, suck on the breasts of a black female 
uh, and this is a, a grown like adult uh, white woman. And this is a black female who's also, you know, over 18 significantly. And she goes and starts just uh, sucking on her breasts. Uh, She gives really graphic depiction. And she says specifically that's a part of it uh, because this is so rare, uh, even in fiction, where you see a white woman in any circumstance, any historical context depicted uh, as a rapist of black females, black males either, but black females in particular uh, to see that. But we talked about her. You can go back and this is uh, the novel Plantation. Uh, We brought this out, but I thought that was a really important segment. Uh, about white women and their sexual appetite and just general uh, terrorism directed against black people not being just an an off product uh, of white racist behavior Um, I thought the word rape should have been used on uh, the bottom of 157 uh, where the uh, sentence reads all this perceived effort though to disguise Dr. Flint's desire and presence makes no sense given as Painter points out that the sexual abuse of women by their masters was a commonly noted occurrence. I submit that what has truly mystified and uh, defied articulation has been female sexuality under slavery and in particular erotic ties. No, no, this is white women's rape, sexual abuse, sexual tyranny against black females. That's the way that it should be articulated. Just wrote about that with Thomas Jefferson. Somehow that that power dynamic, the exploitative nature of this power dynamic frequently gets uh, minimized. Uh, Moving forward, there were some very interesting footnotes in this section of the book. I'm just going to read one. Uh, This is uh, footnote number 42 uh, from chapter 4, which is the chapter that we're still on right now. Uh, It reads, uh, in the previous chapter on Frederick Douglass, I pointed out how the curse of Ham brought together homoeroticism with biblical justification for black skin and the enslavement of persons with black skin. White males learned white males learned in infancy to romanticize and exoticize black male nursemaids, uncles, wait servants and playmates. White women had similar opportunities to romanticize and eroticize black girls and women. Yet, as Nell Irvin Painter points out in Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol, black women did not talk about their sexual abuse by white women because such events would have affected their credibility. Black female rape by white women has gone down in history as so unaccountable, so unreasonable, and what is usually called so unnatural that black women, in the act of claiming themselves as true women, denied and virtually erased the sexual aspect of their slave experience. Here again, we see the category of womanhood diametrically opposed to the being and sexual reality of the slave. Without a fuller embracing of and grappling with the discursive and significance of the slave, we cannot hope to excavate or make sense of the unspoken sexual realities of enslaved or emancipated Persons. This is uh, footnote 42 in chapter 4. It's on uh, page 266 of the book that I have. I will stop there. Uh, did other folks have commentary? Uh, they wanted to add anything uh, that stood out? What did folks think of his, uh, I guess, two of the things that I thought were significant? What did folks make of uh, his emphasis on this beginning in childhood, this sexual appetite, this sexual hunger? for black flesh uh, and consuming uh, of black bodies uh, and his emphasis on white women's uh, sexual uh, exploitation and violation of black females. Uh, Folks 
had anything more they wanted to add. That, or the point about the uh, fluidity, uh, gender fluidity. I thought that was important as well. The last male caller spoke to that. If folks had anything on those three points specifically, or if you had your own other notes, observations you wanted to bring out, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, the gender fluidity aspect, I just see that as an essential part of white culture, that you never know what you're going to get with them. And when I see them walking dogs, I think that they're having sex with their dogs. When I see them with children, I assume that they're raping those children, whether they're black or white. Everything that I've learned from studying white people has made me look at them. It's, it's almost like the movie They Live. It's like I have those special glasses on. And I just look at them completely different than I'm, than I'm 100% sure the vast majority of black people who I work with and I see walking the streets. And it's because, that, and, it's, and I think gender fluidity isn't even the, 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 the correct term. I just think it's sexual deviance and it's a mental illness. And when you go back to Dr. Welsing discussing the fact that white people are an inbred race, if you study animals that are inbred, they have diseases that not only affect their bodies, it also affects their minds and how they function. And a lot of times they function, function in abnormal capacities. And white people are the quintessential example of that. Um, and this is what the book brought home for me the first reading. And reading it again, it's just it's, I'm doubling down on it now, and especially having the contributions of yourself and the other people that call in, uh, that have called in and contributed as well, and I greatly appreciate it. I've super doubled down on that understanding. So I look at them totally different. And you, there was something you, you had brought up. What was one of the other questions you asked about, Gus, besides the gender fluidity? Um, the children, the, the child yeah. aspect. Yes. Oh, then learning, learning about how to do this as children, correct? Was that right. it? Right. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, I find that to be essential because when I go back to um, Dr. Kamal Kamban's concept of uh, post-traumatic cave syndrome, I thought about the fact that when they were having their lesbian trysts and their gay trysts out in the caves, the children were right there. When they were having sex with the animals in the caves, the children were right there. So that's why I remember there was a YouTube video of, a, I think it was a 16-year-old white girl talking about how sex with a dog is better than sex with a man. And she had like 10 reasons why. So they learned this stuff at a young age because these white people literally infect their children with, with their disease. It's just like with um, recently it came out that um, Sandusky's son just got arrested for, for raping children. And when you study the rape of children, all pedophiles have a history, history of being raped themselves. So that's exactly what it is. And even in Greek culture, when you study Greek culture, that Cupid is alluding to child rape. When you see Cupid in their images, that's child rape that they're, they're, they're basically alluding to in a very coded fashion. So it's all in their culture. Everywhere that you look, that's what they have. And just to get back into the text, I found a couple of important things. On page 155, uh, he writes, connecting the unlimited and excuse me, the uninitiated of the past to the uninitiated of the present. Painter confirms that then as now, the sexual abuse of young women by men is deplored but recognized as common. Less easily acknowledged then and now is the fact that there are women who violated children. We can only speculate about the extent to which shame and the emphasis upon reason and nature have kept us from these deeper realities of, black, of the black female experience. White women speaking about the hard facts of slavery risk being taught excuse me, thought of as sexually licentious or even worse as unsexed. For black women, the risk was even greater as whites de facto linked their sexuality with African wilds, 
physical disfigurement and the horses, dogs, and other domestic animals to which Thomas Jefferson compared blacks in his notes on the state of Virginia. And this is something I wrote when I had the first reading a note I took. I said the rapist, racist, fondling father, Thomas Jefferson, compared blacks to animals because the same rape that whites commit on animals, they committed on blacks. And that is exactly why gonorrhea and syphilis are intraspecies diseases that were animal diseases and from whites raping the animals and then raping our ancestors, they brought it to us. And the last thing I wanted to bring up was on page 158 where we just let off that. Um, we, can't, we cannot separate Mrs. Flint in the bedroom acting as both master and mistress from Mrs. Flint, the parasite and consumer practiced in the methodology of slave consumption. Mrs. Flint is, was well-versed in the language and ideology of consumption. She threatened her slaves with skin peeling and prickling. She spit in all of the pots after the cook had finished the big house meal in order to prevent the cook or other slaves from eking out their meager fare with the remains of gravy and other scrappings. She rationed out the food and starved her slaves as a means of maintaining psychic and emotional control. Providing further insight into her character, Jacobs observed Mrs. Flint, like many other Southern women, was totally deficient in energy, but she had not, the, she had not strength to superintend her household affairs, but her nerves were so strong she could sit in her easy chair and see a woman whip till the blood trickled from every stroke of the last lash. Mrs. Flint lacks, the power, lacks power and vitality, yet strongly demonstrates these traits in the context of the torture and subjugation of black females. So this even says, in, even in the sick and dying moments, that they gain some sort of sustenance from the destruction of black life and through brutality on such a deep, deep psycho-spiritual level that they're literally vampiring us through watching us be abused, terrorized, and killed. And that is why I see them highly fascinated with the, um, the lynching postcards of black people being shot to death on camera. Thank you, and I'll mute my line. Yes, Abby. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, I, I thought it was um, extremely interesting that Mr. Flint was disabled and still uh, still abusing Luke. Um, for a non-white victim, it just reinforces the fact that racist man, racist woman, racist child, I believe it was Mr. Fuller, says as long as they can practice racism, they will practice racism as long as they're physically able, mentally able. I'd even go as far as mentally able because he wasn't physically able. He was just mentally able to practice racism because he lost a lot of what physical ability he had. And we see a disabled man who took a fully grown adult, non-white male and at the penalty of death made him commit heinous acts. Um, so that to me just reinforced the fact that disabled people, you know, mute people, people with disabilities, it's, it's, it's mute. When that, that is a very irrelevant point when it comes to white people because they will continue to practice racism in whatever form they are in. Um, and I'll take my call offline. Thank you. Yes, Matt, Yes, sir. Okay, uh, I just wanted to uh, bring up one last point. The when the character Miss Sarah 
for example, a real-life version of Eva's character. She pined and sickened and almost died when her father sold Mary Reynolds, her personal slave. The local doctor ordered Miss Sarah's father to buy back Mary. And when he does, Miss Sarah plumps up right off and grows into fine health. And then it goes to talk about uh, what medical technology can be used to accurately describe this process of need and racialized consumption. That's on page 148. And so it just dawned on me that, you know, some of these uh, childhood uh, fantasies and um, needs that they have based upon the way the plantation, plantation system was set up is <clears throat> was you know probably a real thing and you can imagine growing up in that situation and then becoming grown and um this weird dynamic is going on to where you need uh these non-white black people to survive but then again you're feeding on the mistreatment and physical abuse that you perpetrate upon them, creating another dynamic in itself. But I'll mute my line on that thing. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought it was also uh, significant, uh, the portion he's quoting uh, from Eric Lott here, uh, where he says, uh, Lott, I've been trying to get him as a guest on the program think he went to the University of Virginia, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, Lott interprets the female roles performed at the time solely by white men. He's talking about these menstrual performances, blackface menstrual performances, Al Jolson and the type. Uh, so Eric Lott writes, quoted in uh, The Delectable Negro, a cover, Eric Lott interprets the female roles performed at the time solely by white men as a cover for black maleness, her typically jutting protuberances and general phallic suggestiveness bear all the marks of the white fantasized black men who loom so large in racialized phallic scenarios. It makes perfect sense that castration anxieties in blackface would co-join the black penis and the woman, another referent for whites of Lacan's threatening mother France Fanon argued is precisely the black male. Uh, and he makes many points uh, going back talking about Luke uh, and his disabled white enslaver uh, and saying that, you know, he doesn't, uh, that this disabled white man is not the essence, is not representative of masculinity. It's Luke, uh, the black male, uh, and that the enslaved white male is, is more in the role of uh, the female. He's more in the feminine role, subservient role in this situation. And uh, I guess Woodard making the point that he sees this pattern replicated within the system of racism, white supremacy. I'm even uh, reminded of Donald Sterling before the recording. It was reported that he would go into the locker room of the Clippers, mostly black males, uh, and salivate. Uh, like, wow, look at all these delicious black. I have to go back to find the exact term. Uh, that he used, but it was the same type of homoerotic consumption 
racist homoerotic consumption of him going in. And I think he, I know he said specifically it was about these nude black bodies after they had showered and everything. It was super, super explicitly uh, sexualized uh, with the, the terms that he used. Uh, but it's the same type of thing where Donald Sterling is not this old white dude. He is not the idea representative of masculinity. It would be like some of the black guys that play for the Clippers, uh, like Luke, the enslaved black male. Uh, what, do, what do folks make of that presentation? Yeah, I think um, <laughs> it's, not, it's something that has never stopped. Um, it's something that is continuing and will continue until we replace the system. White people have like such a deep-seated twisted psychopathology psychosexual pathology that um that there's just no limits to their depravity i mean they rape their own children they rape you know nicole kidman her father raped her and he was a part of a huge pedophile ring in, in um in um australia before he um ended up dying under mysterious circumstances this is this is their culture this is the way they are and not only with us it's with themselves a lot of the stuff that they've done to us they've done to each other first they perfected the art of killing and terrorizing and raping and all lying, deception. They perfected that on, on one another first, and then they brought it to us after they perfected it on each other. So they're just like a living disease. I mean, I mean, cancer cells are white. When you get sick, you know, it, your white blood cells are white. They're there to fight and kill. That's all they do. They, they're killers. And uh, just to touch on a personal note, when they talked about the lady spitting in the food, it reminded me of an incident that my mom told me about with my father. Um, one time she was mad at him and he came home from work starving and she had like three full pots of, um, of food that she made. She ate a full, you know, ate herself full and then filled the pots with water with the food in it and left it on the stove for him to see just to make sure that he knew that she was mad at him and she didn't care if he starved that night. And it was one of the most profound things. I had never heard of it before. And then just reading that part of the text or hearing, I think it was M.A. that alluded to that part of the text, made me think about that. I'm wondering if she learned that from white people too. Thank you. And I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I've never knew that there, I don't, I don't know anything about sports, but I've never really heard about who you're speaking about going into the Clippers, uh, locker room and salivating. Um, and you know, I would want to know what the players thought because we're very vigilant people. I mean, we miss a lot because we think that there are some good white people, but I mean, we, we, you know, we got reckless eyeballing. And so I would like to know what the players thought about that or made of that, um, how they felt about that. And then, you know, I'm in the psychology class. so I'm trying to apply everything that I learned to racism, white supremacy, white people, black people, just try to, make it as constructive as possible. And so I know that it can condition an organism with rewards. So I'm like, if that happens before the game, you win the game, then you get the check, because sometimes the reward doesn't have to happen within 15 seconds. Like You can get the reward a little bit later, especially if you're a higher-thinking organism, because you can attribute that reward to what you did. So you know, and I wonder, do you like the black men accept that they're being fetishized, homoeroticized, 
race, race, racially or in a racist manner being homosexualized, like by these white men, like, does any of that, like, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Do they talk about it? Um, and then if they don't talk about it, is it just like, okay, well, whatever, because I get paid. And then when you get paid, does that just reinforce the behavior or the acceptance of it? And then just like all the psychological dynamics that go into making that acceptable. And I say acceptable only because, no, like as far as I know, I could be totally incorrect, but as far as I know, no one was like, hey, wait a minute, you all up in here oogling at my goodies. I'm not really with that. And it was like this whole big thing and, you know, I could be incorrect. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I would like to see that a little bit more. I would like to flesh that out and hear from the black men in those environments, in those situations. And like, what goes, what happens on the court or the field when there's a lot of booty slapping and stuff like that? Like, what do, are white people saying stuff to you when they're like running up on you and stuff like that? Like, things, you know, just all of that, like all the things that could possibly be said and done. And then like, how do you feel? And really, I really don't think that we have the spaces to help people process through all of that kind of stuff, because we don't really talk about it. And so if that happens, and like you accept it, do you think back on it, you know, and be like, well, I accepted it. So does that mean something? Or if you have a physiological, like, does that mean something? Like, there's no space to talk about it. So there's no space to really flesh it out or, you know, get to the bottom of it and then come to some type of clarity around it to move forward in a healthy way. Because then if, if you obsess about the thoughts, then it would come out in some other way. And maybe you have like a warped sexual life or experience with your sexual body or anything like that. So I had never heard about, I'm not surprised at all. I had just never heard that. So, okay. Thank you. For sure. We're almost uh, set to get started for the second audio segment, but, uh, and this was why for some folks, uh, if people remember when Donald Sterling, this is the former white man who owned the Los Angeles Clippers, who's huge deal. One of the biggest stories of 2014, aware he was recorded saying all of these things to his non-white, uh, I guess, sexual partner, girlfriend, whatever she was, V. Stiviano, saying uh, he didn't want her with uh, black people and long audio. Anyway, uh, all of this, he had to sell a team, blah, blah, blah. Before that year, this was 2014. In 2011, it was reported, and this was reported on ESPN, Deadspin. There were quite a few uh, mainstream outlets uh, that reported this. Uh, Donald Sterling looking at those beautiful black bodies, beautiful black bodies in quotes. This is 2011. I'm reading from Deadspin. It's not very long. Another day, another headlong plunge into the creepy racial and sexual dynamics of Donald Sterling's id. At this point, it's hard to shake the feeling that Sterling goes through life thinking he's perpetually at the back row of a pussycat theater. Here's the latest via ESPN's J.A. Adande, who got his hands on another round of filings in Elgin Baylor's lawsuit against the Clippers. Elgin Baylor is a black male, so this might be work for this is workplace racism. Uh, so Elgin Baylor in his lawsuit writes, while ignoring my suggestions and isolating me from decisions customarily reserved for general man managers, the Clippers attempted to place the blame for the team's failures on me. I think we heard that in the text this week. Uh, black people being blamed for things they didn't do. Baylor said in the declaration during the same period, players Sam Cassell, Elton Brand, 
and Corey Maggette complained to me that Donald Sterling would bring women into the locker room after games while the players were showering and make comments such as, look at those beautiful black bodies, in quotes. I brought this to Sterling's attention, but he continued to bring women into the locker room. Uh, and he goes on uh, with lots of other uh, instances where it continues to be racial and sexual at the same time. Uh, and this is, like I said, 2011. This did not get all of the attention that the recording and everything generated in 2014, although it did come up eventually in 2014. Like, oh, yeah, remember that, too? Wow, yeah, that guy really was racist. But all of that to say, everything that we're reading in Delectable Negro now, you should not think that this is antiquated uh, or just some old moldy stuff that he dug up uh, that happened 250 years ago or what have you and has no relevance to what's happening today. Uh, I would say you are in error. Uh, if you pay attention to whites at all, you see these same types of things demonstrated on a daily basis. With that, we'll get to the second audio segment. Uh, folks, we didn't get to. We will nab you as soon as the second audio segment concludes. This is Vincent Woodard, the delectable Negro, audio segment number two, Context of White Supremacy. For women like Miss Flint, the plantation was a spiritual and emotional wasteland. Such women hungered and even starved for the affections and attentions of their husbands. They learned to harden and deaden themselves to physical and psychological abuses, and furthermore, in the context of such brutalities, developed a method of nurturing and sustaining themselves by drawing upon the erotic and psychic energy of black women. In the bedroom scenario, Miss Flint takes Jacobs into her special care. She channels her sexual frustration regarding her husband, her jealousy and hatred into nightly vigils, into rituals of erotic interchange that usually end with whispers and Jacobs awakening to the woman leaning over her in the dead of night. Jacobs feels an unnamed terror. At last, she says, I begin to be fearful for my life. It has often been great. Terrible this as this experience was, I had fears that it would give place to one more terror. Sex and consumption fuel Dr. Flint's constant threats against Jacob's life. Similarly, with Miss Flint, the threat of death commingled with sex, so that we cannot know for sure if the terrible act that Jacob's imagined is molestation and rape at the hands of the mistress, the mistress beating her to death, or death by some other anus unspeakable means. The point is that we do not have to know the particulars to understand how thoroughly interwoven it is this moment with same-sex eroticism and with a socially sanctioned white female hunger and appetite. Jacobs locates the root of all this in the good doctor and in plantation patriarchy. However, the problem with Dr. Flint's desire, male patriarchal desire, as the glue that holds all of this together, is that his example overshadows and inhibits our access to more central domestic operations. More specifically, I am thinking of the intimate female-centered ways in which a woman such as Miss Flint learns to objectify and erotically consume a black woman slave. Replacing Flint with someone like Jacob's grandmother 
will take us a lot further in recovering Ms. Flynn's learned practices of social consumption. Aunt Martha, Jacob's grandmother, does not stand out in the narrative as someone who suffers from social consumption. As Jacob struggles for her life, this elderly black woman is free, a landowner and property owner, and is considered an upstanding member of the community. In her goodness, her moral character, and domestic practice, Aunt Marthy seems to be in no way connected to the cruelty, meanness, and consumptive urges of Jacob's mistress. Aunt Marthy is the typical good grandmother from black antebellum experience. Moses Roper describes in his slave narrative how his grandmother comes into the slave cabin and saves him in childhood from the murdering knife of the slave mistress. In Douglas's narrative, the caring, sustaining black grandmother replaces the absent mother. So too, in Jacob's narrative, does the grandmother come to represent the whole book of black maternity. She, even better than the mother, helps establish racial continuity, maternity, and female virtue as inherent phenomena. Both Jacobs and her editor slash benefactress Lydia Martha Child sees upon the idea of the good grandmother as a way of refuting northern white women's ideas of black women as bad, unclean, and natively dead. Child even published an excerpt of Jacob's narrative under the title The Good Grandmother in her 1865 text The Freedman's Book. Jacob's grandmother fits the typical role of the mammy figure a nurturing black woman who beloved by all who could do anything and do it better than anyone else. Because of her expertise in all domestic matters, she was the premier house servant and all others were her subordinates. Whites in the community refer to the grandmother as auntie and mammy. Underlying all the goodness and affection associated with the mammy was an undercurrent of cruelty and self-sacrifice from which young white women such as Miss Flint benefited. For it was implicitly understood that, unlike that of the Jezebel, the role of the mammy displaced sexuality into nurture and transformed potential hostility into sustenance and love. Devoid of sexuality, the mammy served as a font of nurturing. She was the perfect emotional playground, the perfect vehicle through which young white women could work out and practice their need, their sexual hostility, and other types of aggression. Miss Flint learned in the suckling stage of her development this utilitarian purpose of the mammy figure. Years and generations later, it still paints Auntie Marthy that while nursing her female child, she had to take her own baby from her breast to nourish his wife, Miss Flint. Even when Miss Flint is dismissive of Jacob's grandmother, not greeting her when she passes in the street, the black woman, because of her abiding maternal feelings, cannot completely disconnect from the white woman. Jacob relates that such public treatment wounded my grandmother's feelings, for she could not retain ill will against the woman whom she had nourished with her milk when a babe. Jacob's grandmother and Miss Flint have an entirely different expectation of the maternal bond 
that binds him. Miss Flint nurturing in infancy is intrinsically tied to the starvation of and emotional denial of the slave. Her spitting into pots, denying food to her, her cook and her cook's children are gestures that reflect the domination of her white womanhood and the kindred tie that she has learned from her mother, her aunts, and at the breast of Aunt Marthy. Miss Flint's mother, while more subtle and refined in her appetites, maintains rituals of social consumption that develop upon the black mammy figure. By the time we encounter Jacob's grandmother in the narrative, she is a free woman. Her freedom from slavery is not so much given as it is earned through backbreaking labor and sacrifice. She does not she does her plantation chores as well as additional baking, washing, and other jobs in order to save up money to purchase her freedom and that of family members. Before her mistress dies, the elderly white woman borrows $300 from Aunt Marthy to purchase a silver candelabra. She promises to pay the money back and to free Aunt Marthy upon her death. She never pays the money back and only frees the black woman after she has died and has no further use of her. Her will and testament reflects her promise to free Aunt Marthy, but Dr. Flint does not honor the will. Instead, he puts the grandmother up for sale at a private auction. Adding insult to injury, he also keeps the silver candelabra as part of his personal cache of precious household wares. Jacobs paints a classic sentimental scene around the selling of her grandmother. When the day of sale came, she took her place among the chattels, and at the first call she sprang upon the auction block. Many voices called out, Shame! Shame! Who is going to sell you, Aunt Marthy? Don't stand there. That's no place for you. Without saying a word, she quietly awaited her fate. No one bid for her. At last, a feeble voice said, Fifty dollars! It came from a maiden lady, seventy years old, the sister of my grandmother's deceased mistress. She had lived forty years under the same roof with my grandmother. She knew how faithfully she had served her owners and how cruelly she had been defrauded of her rights, and she resolved to protect them. Miss Fanny purchases the black woman for the extremely low price of $50. Jacobs cast white women such as Miss Fanny and her sister in the role of protectress as honorable keepers of their word, good, consciousable, and ladylike. The author has little to say of the silver candelabra purchased with the money saved by an enslaved woman to purchase her freedom and that of her children. For the sake of her white female readership, Jacobs emphasized instead the good intentions of the deceased mistress and the system of self-sacrifice and reward that ultimately secured the freedom of Aunt Marthy. Flint reserves as a type of pressure valve through which Jacob filters all of the contradiction and irony of the grandmother's predicament. He is the executor of the elder white woman's will. He keeps the candelabra, and he advertises the selling of Jacob's grandmother. Flint fits seamlessly into this role, since we have already come to associate him with greed 
an extreme sexual appetite. Yet we should not too hastily separate the refinement and good taste of Aunt Martha's mistress from the social consumption of the black mammy. If Flint is a despot and pariah, then it is his wife's affluence and her deceased grandmother's wealth that infuses and animates his desires. By law, Jacobs and her children belong to Flint's wife. While Flint is brash and blatant, his appetites and devouring nature pronounced throughout the narrative, the consumptive drives of the deceased white mistress remain cloaked in finery and social affluence. The silver candelabra serves as an emblem of her good taste, an article recognized in the domestic sphere as beautiful, tasteful, and feminine. In this way, the grandmother's labor and stare of enslavement feed in, into and sustain this white woman's self-esteem and domestic virtue. The characteristics of self-sacrifice and self-negation typically ascribed to the mammy facilitate this white woman in fulfilling her fantasies of material well-being in a social finery. Jacob's configuration of the goodly black grandmother and the beneficent white female does not readily reveal the ties of consumption binding the black grandmother to her mistress. In Jacob's version of her story, she encourages us to perceive no connection between the acquired high cultural taste of Miss Flint's grandmother and Miss Flint starving her of slaves and hovering over Jacob's at night in a sexually suggestive manner. The nursing of the young white mistress in infancy apparently has nothing to do with the institutionalized starving of the black woman's children on the plantation. To clarify, I am not suggesting that we replace the good with the bad, recasting Miss Flint's grandmother, for example, as the bad white woman who does not free her slave and steals the money the black woman has saved to purchase her freedom. What I am urging is a more complex understanding of the good, of the fact that we cannot divorce a white slave mistress good intentions from the spiritual depravity and practices of social consumption that shaped her. I have no doubt that Miss Flint's mother cared deeply for Aunt Marjorie. Neither do I doubt the affections of the larger white community, whom she supplied with crackers and preserves, and who respected her intelligence and good character. The whites who yell out, Shame! Shame! Who is going to sell you, Aunt Marthy? Don't stand there. That's no place for you. Have grown up at the nurturing breast and spoon of Aunt Marthy. Like the well-shined silver candelabra, she is a familiar and valued fixture in their emotional and psychic worlds. They imagine her as surrogate mother, familiar and relative, and hence the spectacle of the black woman on the auction block shocks them. Mary Prince, a black woman who experienced slavery around the same time, liken the auction block to the butcher's block. Standing for auction, as I have mentioned once, she recalls, I was soon surrounded by strange men who examined and handled me in the same manner a butcher would have calf or a lamb he was about to purchase, who was talked about by shape and size in like words, as if I could no more understand their meaning than the dumb beast. The whites imagine Aunt Marthy as separate and apart from the economy of human consumption that Prince describes. 
What they seem to not realize, though, is that their regard for the mammy's self-sacrifice and overbrimming goodness serve only to oil and ease the machinery of consumption. What I am attempting to tease out through this auction block scene is the difference between the institution of consumption and the intimate human ties that fueled and enabled this system. It was one thing for whites to construct gurneys and rope ties or to literally feed a slave into a machine, such as the cotton gin. And it was an altogether different matter for them to feel, as one Kentucky slave master felt, a sense of enjoyment and completion in the consumption of the slave. We have already observed that after literally butchering and cooking his slave's quartered body over an open fire, this Kentucky slave owner reported to his wife that he had never enjoyed himself so well at a ball as he had enjoyed himself that evening. I am not equating the whites gathered around the auction block with the heinousness of this particular slave master. This man was more insane than most and later committed suicide. Yet his example of acquiring a taste for the Negro is instructive. It demonstrates in the extreme, how whites within a culture of consumption could not help but develop tastes, affections, and high cultural values rooted in the chattel slave. I see little difference between the Kentucky slave owner who associates the butchering and cooking of flesh with ballroom refinery and the whites gathered around the auction block associating sacred maternal feelings with a black woman who is at base an owned object a utilitarian repository of their infantile memories and needs. It is the good in these whites and not the bad that completes the circuit, the logic of need and self-denial that undergirds the mechanisms of consumption. Without the intimate feel-good tie between the mammy and her white progeny, there could be no psychic and spiritual consumption. Without ideological, symbolic structures intended to validate the mammy's consumption, there could be no sanity in this essentially inverted reality, which is why, getting back to the bedroom interactions between Miss Flint and Jacobs, we need different structures of erotic desire, gender, and intimacy to help us make a broader sense of slave experience within this essentially unstable and hunger-driven context. We cannot get from here to there to an understanding of the masculine mistress or of Jacob's fears of death and sexual violation through models of gender and sex that always privilege the patriarch and the male-slash-female conjugal union as natural and originary states. Miss Flint does not simulate masculinity, as some have suggested nor does she simulate the master's erotic desire and dominion. She is masculine. She is aggressor and predator. She comes naturally by a restless, craving, vicious nature that causes her to rove about like her husband, day and night, seeking whom to devour. Her masculine drive originates in the domestic sphere, a fact that goes against usual ways of thinking about the feminine as linked to the domestic realm and about masculinity as originating within the male body and male sexual drive. Describing Miss Flint as whispering in her husband's voice 
and adopting his erotic mindset is as close as Jacobs can safely come to asserting that Miss Flint is male, acting male, seeming to her senses and sensibilities to be male. Such discussion of a male type of female was risky, as it could easily be used to support commonly held notions of women as hungering and disfigured in black women in particular as sexually knowledgeable, monstrous, and devouring. Social conventions limited Jacobs, as did her reliance upon a pristine, untainted model of womanhood. However, these discursive limitations upon Jacobs need not restrict our exploration of gender variance in the narrative. Miss Flint's masculinity makes greater sense when we think about her through the ideology of slave consumption. Miss Flint's male behaviors serve as an index for appetite and consumptive capacity. Jacobs understands slavery as sexual ravishment, and sexual ravishment as a process that facilitates the consumption of the female slave. She lays out this ideology when she speaks of Dr. Flint as hungering and devouring as one who consistently chattels channels these appetites into acts of sexual domination. More than anything, Miss Flint hungers like a man, a fact that shocks and terrifies Jacobs as she lies beneath her mistress in the dead of night. Only through this deeper understanding of and contextualization of masculinity can we understand how important and intrinsic hunger and consumption are to the white female's gender and domestic identity. We might even say, in a way that scholars up to this point have not allowed, that hunger and appetite are constitutive of gender and sex within the plantation context. Does hunger then become before sex and gender? Or do the former categories come before the latter? It is a question that merits extensive examination beyond the purview of this study. I point out the correlation between hunger and gender categorizations only so that we might understand how the masculinity of the mistress is a significant point of fact. As unopposed to being a male mask, the mistress's male identity is more a reflection of an intrinsic consumptive capacity that we cannot otherwise get at within the lexicon of 19th century gender roles. Not just in Miss Flint, but in other slave owners, we find hunger depicted as fluid, mutable, and able to conform to myriad social conventions. In other parts of the narrative, Jacobs documents plantation mistresses who taught and pursue their female slaves with the might of a man. Even Flint does not operate out of a strict sense of patriarchal authority. At one point, he writes to Jacobs in the guise of a slave mistress. He wants her to voluntarily return home after having escaped from the plantation. He entreats. The family will be rejoiced to see you, and your poor old grandmother expressed a great desire to have you come when she heard your letter read. In her old age, she needs the consolation of having her children round her adding another layer of sentimentality to his maternal voice, Flint describes an all-night vigil at the bedside of Jacob's dying aunt. 
Could you have seen us round her deathbed, with her mother all mingling our tears in one common stream? You would have thought the same heartfelt tie existed between a master and his servant as between a mother and her child. Flint manipulates the consumptive currency of the black man. He plays upon Jacob's mother loss and mother hunger, hoping to entice her back through her unrequited needs. Explaining the correlation between emotional and physical starvation and sexual ravishment, Jacobs reveals that the slave girl is reared in an atmosphere of licentiousness and fear. When she is 14 or 15, her owner or his sons or the overseer, or perhaps all of them, begin to bribe her with presents. If these fail to accomplish their purpose, she is whipped or starved into submission to their will. When we figure hunger centrally into the equation of gender and sex in the narrative, what we presume to know about certain normative realms of experience gives way to a fluid uncertainty. How are we to make sense of masters who speak in the voices of young mistresses? And to what extent can we rely upon a patriarchal model of consumption when women such as Miss Flint's grandmother anticipate and enable the consumptive passions of her son-in-law, Dr. Flint. Male Mothers and Female Masters I begin this discussion of gender variance and the master's epicurean hungers with the example of Luke. By beginning with Luke in an exploration of his gender and sexual ambiguity and then tracking similar findings in Jacob's life and circumstances, my intention was to denude us of certain binary logics and relationships man slash woman, black female abolitionist slash white female abolitionist, master slash mistress, and reproductive slash neutered, among others. In response to my own question about how to make sense of Flint as a male grandmother and the inherently masculine appetites of Mrs. Flint, I think that we need to begin from an implied zero ground. The unstable sex, gender, and corporeality of the slave. In the context of Jacob's slave narrative, the Flint's gender fluidity rests upon the bedrock of gender and sex presumptions attributed to the body and person of the slave. Both Jacob's and Luke, I have labored to prove, embody this central dynamic of gender and sex instability in their relationships to abusive masters and within same-sex erotic scenarios that defy normative schemas of gender and sex formation. The master-slave dynamic, as fruitful as it is, can take us only so far in understanding how gender variance and gender fluidity have historically operated in the lives of enslaved persons. What I have had in mind this whole time is Luke and Jacobs together constituting a new and dynamic field of possibility. For they are not just anonymous actors in Jacobs' narrative, but historical antecedents to Sapphire who enacts her old man in drag, and to Trudier Harris' conception of the black male mammy who services white men on the plantation and during the Reconstruction era. In the slave past, and still today, the gender-variant dyad of black male and female functions as an antinode of black experience. That dynamic that we have privately and silently acknowledged but have disavowed in all ways in the public domain. 
Hortense J. Spillers has quite astutely identified the politics of gender differentiation as central to black subject making in the New World. Spillers conceives of the captivity in Africa and the Middle Passage as a theft of the body, a willful and violent severing of the captive body from its motive will, its active desire. She also equates this theft of the black body with the loss of gender identity for black people in the New World. Under these conditions, we lose at least gender differences in the outcome, and the female body and the male body become a territory of cultural and political maneuver, not at all gender-related, gender-specific. In the absence of gender specificity of distinctive categories of gender, Spillers finds the enslaved black body functioning in European and white American imaginations as a category of otherness, the captive body translating into a potential for pornotroping and embodying sheer physical powerlessness that slides into a more general powerlessness, resonating through various centers of human and social meaning. Who can contest Spillers' spot-on analysis of gender ambiguity coinciding with white American conceptions of black animality, disfigurement, sexual taint, and the clandestine pornotroping that has characterized white erotic access to black bodies under slavery? Colonial-era whites constructed black, slave, chattel, and African to mean quantitatively nothing and virtually anything. These indeterminate categories whites then mapped into black, male, and female bodies in overlapping and indiscriminate ways. Spiller's well-stated point is that this gender ambiguity mapped into Negroid bodies helped concretize the exclusion of African Americans from the humane categories of mother, father, statesman, son, daughter, citizen, and so forth. The challenge, though, what with what Spillers describes as the political imperative to differentiate between genders, is that within African-Americanist scholarship, this gender politics has contributed to a theoretical aversion to gender and sex instability. We have yet to fully develop or recover the ability to see black culture as positively constituted through a fluid gender and sex dynamic. For example, in Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism, Bell Hooks conceives of the masculinization of the black female and the demasculinization of the black male as primary dysfunctional experiences that can only reveal us to the dynamics of sexist and racist oppression during slavery. Hooks keeping to a strict understanding of black demasculinization as the loss of the phallus or of phallic might asserts that while black men were not Forced to assume a role colonial American society regarded as feminine, black women were forced to assume a masculine role. Hook's rigid conception of gender forecloses, from the outset, any consideration of men, such as Luke, who were effeminized and made to play a range of social roles that transgress normative gender roles. Angela Y. Davis, in her pioneering scholarship on black women's roles during slavery, locates the idea of the genderless black female in plantation labor practices. Expediency governed the slaveholders' posture towards female slaves when it was profitable to exploit them 
as if they were men. They were regarded, in effect, as genderless. Davis also equates the genderless black woman and female masculinity with the negative intentions of the master and the sense of the genderless black woman as lacking power and social agency. Michelle Wallace has linked black cultural workers' long-standing aversion to gender and sex fluidity to 1980s radical black sexual politics. Describing the black homosexual as descending from black women raped during slavery, she writes, The black homosexual is counter-revolutionary. One, because he's being fucked, and two, because he's being fucked by a white man. By so doing, he reduces himself to the status of our black grandmothers who, as everyone knows, were fucked by white men all the time. As with Hooks, Wallace conceives of sexual variance within radical black experience as a reflection of the dynamics of sexist and racist oppression during slavery. How unfortunate this association with black female sexual violation under slavery would render black men in the late 20th century counter-revolutionary. This is exactly what I'm talking about. The clear need that we see demonstrated in Wallace's commentary for a sex and gender politics that would allow the contemporary male homosexual to positively embody the powerful legacy of the sexually violated grandmothers under slavery. As it stands, during the time of Wallace's writing and still today, Black men who embody the sexual genealogies of the black mother and grandmothers suffer misrecognition and demonization within most arenas of black radical activity and thought. Shudir Harris, whom I quoted from earlier, excavates the reality of the black grandmotherly or mammy-like figure only as a means of demonstrating black men's emotionally emasculated relationships to white men, stemming back to slavery. In calling our attention to Luke and Jacobs as prototypical, historically resonant pairing, I had in mind the implicit gender variant pairings that have informed the logic of Harris, Hooks, Davis, or Spillers, who each in her own way construes gender variance and instability as a negative state to be corrected or transcending. In her discussion of gender, Spillers describes a transgendered sapphire switching gender roles with her father. Sapphire enacts her old man in drag, just as her old man becomes Sapphire in outrageous caricature. Hooks pairs the improbable black male and feminine with masculinized black women on the plantation. Harris's notion of the black male mammy parallels black female powerlessness. It is the masculine connotations implied in the mammy role and the black women in general that leads that lends itself to donning or dragging by black men under slavery. Then there is Wallace's notion of black men who enact the sexual roles of raped maternal figures from slavery. Wallace also invokes as a parallel structure the masculinized black woman from the plantation. In a largely unacknowledged manner, these gender and sexually variant pairings have operated and continue to operate at the nexus of our conceptualizations of black bodies, sexes, gender expressions, and so forth that emerge out of slavery. As a pairing, Luke and Jacobs help us see the positive outcomes of theorizing gender fluidity. The variance and fluidity of Luke and Jacobs 
enable them to survive within a culture of human consumption. Luke's role of the male mammy facilitates his resistance to his master and reveals to us, in stark fashion, the deeper, often unseen dynamics of incest and emotional hunger charging the relationship the relation rather between master and slave. Although Jacobs provides ambiguous information about his erotic proclivities, we can and should still speculate about the ways in which perhaps Luke's erotic desire for men or for a specific man may have sustained him and made him resistant to his master's desire to erotically partake of and consume him. Likewise, with Jacobs, in maintaining so vehemently the narrative of her pursuit of motherhood, we have largely overlooked how an aggressive sexuality and masculinized female economy of reproduction defined her relationship to reproduction and her children. Perhaps, then, her pursuit of coital pleasure and the children that resulted are better thought of as expressions of her resistance to social consumption. Of course, if we follow this line of thinking, we have to think about Jacobs in all sorts of sexual knowledgeable and therefore unsexed capacities. In additional to her sexuality, there is also the genealogy of Jacobs' gender and black maternity, which I have already explained as rooted in the notion of male mistresses and masculinized white female appetite and aggression. It is time for us, as forward-thinking scholars of slavery, to get beyond our theoretical aversions to gender and sex variants under slavery. I have attempted to clarify, through the example of variants Luke and Jacobs, that we still have much labor to do in the way of formally excavating and beginning to analyze the import of the gender-crossing sexual, sexually fluid pairing. Context of white supremacy. That is the end of chapter four. We'll start next week, chapter five, eating Nat Turner. Uh, folks have commentary they would like to share. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Uh, I think we did not get retired firefighter last time around, so we'll start with him, and then we will nab everyone else. Uh, retired firefighter, did you have commentary, sir? Uh, just to uh, what I think is the fact that uh, what I'm hearing is uh, is still affecting uh Known by black people today in their relationship uh, with white people, and they are not going to willfully uh, disconnect from us uh, from Area 9. Uh, it is something that's going to have to be uh, done by uh, non white people themselves. Thank you. For sure. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, please do not wait till the last minute. We have a little less than 30 minutes before the conclusion of the broadcast. Other folks have commentary that they would like to share? Line should be open. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. 
Okay, I'd just like to uh, make a point. Uh, with all this uh, psychological analysis of the white mind of the uh, slave master and the slave mistress, I'm just wondering how much of this information would have helped any of the enslaved people during that time. And I just wanted to uh, comment about the white mistress that uh, borrowed the $300 from uh, Aunt Marthy, who was a slave, and, you know, never paid her back, promised to free her. But then when she freed her, uh, Dr. Flint did not honor that will. It uh, just, you know, reminds me of a, a movie, I believe it was The Help, when Cicely Tyson was playing um, this mammy type figure and she had been loyal to the family for years and had been part of the family so to speak and the endearment that she had towards the white people and then <clears throat> for one little trivial uh, thing they put out into the street you know fired her and there was no uh benefits as far as social security or any type of way for her to uh, uh, gain substance. Uh, and then there was a, a part in uh, Harry Jacobs' uh, narrative where um, an old man was coming to get his substance, which was, you know, a pound of meat or something and a few beans or whatever. And one of the white women, the mistress, I guess it was Dr. Flint's mistress, I believe, <clears throat> you know, wouldn't even let the the elderly black man get his rations. And uh, she said that she thought that uh, when he got old, a slave got old, that he should live on grass. And so they didn't give him uh, any rations that eventually he, he just died. So we can't uh, let our guards down on these people, uh, no matter how nice they may seem or what type of uh, facade is going on. They do not care about you. They want your existence to end on this earth. And uh, we better uh, start realizing that and uh, uh, look after ourselves. You know, the knowledge may have helped the slaves into protecting themselves against these devils, but uh, uh, knowing how it affects you, I believe, would be more effective. You know, what type of uh, conditioning that we've been on. I'll mute my line. Thanks, girl. Appreciate that, Can Mr. Demery. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was trying to get in real quick. Can I be heard? Am I clear like this? Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. So, okay, absolutely not to the, unfortunately, I'm driving, so I can't read the quote, but like the last couple of sentences or the paragraph or however it's formulated in the text to what the art, what the author said, BGQ. Um, but no, I understand what he's, I feel as though I understand what he's attempting to do, but I disagree. And I don't think that that's like necessary. Uh, I understand what Angela Davis is doing and the so-called radical revolutionaries are saying. Um, the one thing I do understand and appreciate that he's saying is that black 
men, males, who have been sexually terrorized and victimized and who are perhaps gender confused or sexually confused or, you know, exuding behaviors that would fall outside of what would be considered normal or healthy don't need to be demonized. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Don't need to be uh, cast aside as if they don't have a, a place or don't deserve any kind of context or anything like that. And I, I really respect that position. That was like the most, one of the very profound things that in the text, because I think that happens too often that people, we can be very uh, harsh, cruel, and mean to uh, confused black men as if they've ever really had the space to be men or see other black men and express their masculinity in healthy ways and all of that. And they just, it, it's hard. Uh, but I don't believe that that's the same as saying that we need to uh, embrace some kind of gender fluidity or make a space in history for people who consider them, like to make a new label of gender fluidity back then. I don't think that that's the same thing. I think being victimized and terrorized and being shaped and conditioned to perform sexually or do certain things sexually, you know, us having had centuries of that kind of sexual terrorism and abuse and psycho training, I suppose, you know, to make us see certain ways, I think that's how it should be talked about. Not to say, well, look, we've been this way since we got here. No. I don't think so at all. And I don't think that just because something is means that it has to stay that way. So, and that what I'm saying is just because people appear to be gender confused and fluid and all that kind of stuff and sexually have different orientations and whatnot means that we should just say, oh, okay, well, you know, 400 years, this is what happened, this is what it is. We're just going to have to bite the bullet and say this is the new thing. I, that's the problem with linear thinking, which is part of the problem with being educated in the institution. Um, it's not circular. And, you know, no, absolutely not. And so I was like, no. And um, I just I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, okay, the other one thing that I wanted to talk about was the consumption of the black mother. I really don't even know what I want to say. It just kept ringing in my head. The con there's mother hunger, but there's the consumption of the black mother. I mean, from various vignettes that were shared in the text, the first part and now, you know, not being able to feed your own child, not being able to nurse your own child, having to nurse this white person looking down at this, you know, I mean, this white baby sucking at your breast for milk um, and, you know, all of that. Uh, and as a mother, you know, I think that, I mean, I'm not a mother, so I'm saying from, you know, I have a mother um, and watching other mothers you see that. And I think that's Oprah. Like, I think that's quote unquote Aunt Jemima. I think that might even be, um, oh man, I'm escaping her name because I worked myself up. The woman in How to, How to Get Away with Murder. I think sometimes, like, because even I watched like a season of that or a couple episodes of that and how she is, you know, towards the white children, very, you know, encouraging and loving and stuff like that and not towards the black kids in the same type of way. Um, but even when you go to work, all the white people want all of your, like, it's like they want to be mothered by you. It's nurturing from you. And I think if we talk about that with black men as well, which is what I think the author is alluding to, like the gender, quote, unquote, gender fluid black male, that 
white people want that from him as well, for him to be motherly, quote, unquote, and nurturing and stuff, and to be extra caring and things like that. And so, you know, like the quote, unquote, Uncle Tom or, or all the other names that they have for black men who they made into that position to do that. So there's like having to have tremendous respect because that, I think, still plays out today. Like if you go to work, you can see all the black people have to be really, really nice to the white people, but then go home and really kind of can't be around their own children or don't have the energy or the time for their own children. Um, And I think that's the same dynamic. Uh, But thank you for letting me speak. Uh, folks we haven't heard from uh, have commentary that they wanted to share. Line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, Gus. I appreciate it. Uh, brilliant, brilliant points to MA, the firefighter, all the previous callers. Um, like I said, I thank you all. Um, this is great to be reading this text with you all. Um, on page 160, um, he writes, Jacob's grandmother fits the typical role of the mammy figure, a nurturing black woman beloved by all who could do anything and do it better than anyone else. Because of her expertise in all domestic matters, she was a premier house servant and all others were her subordinates. Whites in the community referred to the grandmother as auntie and mammy, underlying all the goodness and affection associated with the mammy was an undercurrent of cruelty and self-sacrifice from which young white women such as Mrs. Flint benefited, for it was implicitly understood that unlike that of the Jezebel, the role of the mammy displaced sexuality into nurture and transformed potential hostility into sustenance and love. Devoid of sexuality, the mammy served as a font of nurturing. She was the perfect emotional playground, the perfect vehicle through which young white women could work out and practice their need, their sexual hostility, and other types of aggression. When you talk about uh, racist man, racist woman, racist child, he's telling you there that these young white children are practicing being racist with this this older black black female who's forced to suckle them. And when I see um, in, in New York City, it's, a lot of them tend to be black Caribbean or um, for the most part, black Caribbean women uh, and sometimes Latino women actually taking care of these white children. And I've seen how some of them treat these women as far as practicing racism on them. And these are kids as young as five, four, six, seven, and this speaks to that right there, like just that that reading where they're saying that they they're using this as a, as practice, you know, practice for what they're what you know for what they're going to grow up to be, which is uh, psycho psychological and sexual racial terrorists. So, speaks a lot to the fact that white people in all states, all forms and fashions, like the previous caller said, if they're mentally ill, doesn't matter, homeless, doesn't matter. I've seen every type of white person possible practice racism. Senile doesn't matter; they're all racist. Um, a couple uh, then in the next paragraph, he writes: Years and generations later, it still pains Aunt Marthy while nursing her female child. She had to take her own baby from her breast to nourish his wife, Mrs. Flint, and they put that in brackets. Um, the funny part is, and then said even even when Mrs. Flint is dismissive of Jacob's grandmother not greeting her when she passes her in the street, the black woman, because of her abiding maternal feelings, cannot completely disconnect from the white woman. Jacob relates that such public treatment wounded my grandmother's feelings, for she could not retain ill will against the woman whom she had nourished with her milk when she was a babe. 
So that Stockholm syndrome in, in complete description there, sadly, for um for Aunt Marthy. And I remember you had that, that guy on Gus that turned out to be like a homeland security agent. And I remember he discussed the fact that um black people, black women, like white women really didn't care about their children if they could take their own child and literally give them to their enemy to breastfeed. And that I immediately thought of that particular episode. I'm forgetting the guy's name. Um, it's on the tip of my tongue, but you'll you probably remember him. But anyway, I remember he discussed that, and, and when she talked about having to remove her own baby from her breast to to nourish Mrs. Flint, that was something that was done all the time, and they would just snatch your child away, and you were forced to basically take care of these white terrorists. And then you're nurturing someone who's going to grow into an arch racist terrorist of yourself and the child your own child if you you know if you had a child at that time while you were forced to breastfeed them so that is just horrific and i couldn't imagine what she had gone through um in, in regards to that kind of suffering um where's um the irritated genius yeah thank you the irritated genie. that's it thank you so much i appreciate it yes Absolutely. Yeah. I remember when he said that on one of the interviews he had done with Gus, and I found that interesting. Um, on page 168, he writes, he writes the dynamics of sexist and racist oppression during, oh, no, here it is. Oh, oh. Hooks keeping to a strict understanding of black demasculinization, the loss of the phallus of phallic might asserts that while black men were not forced to assume a role colonial American society regarded as feminine, Black women were forced to assume a masculine role. Hook's rigid conception of gender forecloses from the outset any consideration of men such as Luke, who were effeminized and made to play a range of social roles that transgress, transform, excuse me, transgress normative gender roles. Angela Y. Davis, in her pioneering scholarship on black women's roles during slavery, locates the idea of the genderless black female in plantation labor practices. Expediency governed the slaveholders' posture toward black toward female slaves, excuse me, when it was profitable to exploit them as if they were men, they were regarded in effect as genderless. Davis also equates the genderless black woman and and female masculinity with the negative intentions of the master and the sense of genderless black women as lacking power and social agency. To me, this is a part of how they lesbianized our women. I think the black women were lesbianized. They were basically conditioned to take on these roles and then forced to play these roles under the duress of white supremacy in the chattel slave scenario, no different than Luke and other black men were forced to be effeminized in the same exact manner. And what we're seeing now is the same thing, but on a psychological and even genetic manipulative level with the epidemic of um, homosexuals in the black community, whether they are male or female, I think it's the same thing being done, but they're using it through food and genetic manipulation and then psychosocial conditioning via media and the TV and things like that. Thank you. And I'll meet my line. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, Viola Davis, I think that was the other name uh, folks are struggling with from how to get away with murder and the different way that she treats the uh, white students versus the black students on there. Um, last few minutes before uh, we get ready to wrap things up. Uh, some of the things that stood out in this chapter, uh, I think I took more notes on this section than some of the other sections. I even contemplated one of our listeners. She wrote in uh, via Twitter. She wrote in some of her thoughts on the book a while ago, which were interesting. And I just I keep neglecting to read them. I'll see if I can get them in before we wrap up today. Uh, some of the 
first few things. Let's see. Uh, when he says, I thought it was a great uh, line when he talked about the way that uh, white women, the way he phrased it specifically drawing uh, upon the erotic and psychic energy of black women. I think this is something that whites do all the time. I think we talked about this yesterday on workplace racism when they just got to talk and talk and talk. And, oh, let me tell you about, you know, what happened to me over this weekend. And, oh, the black people came in and were racist. They called me a cracker. And, oh, you know, my children is and just talk and talk and talk. It just gets you to empathize with them and console and comfort them. Uh, psychic drawing upon the erotic and psychic energy of black women. I think whites do this all the time. Uh, next, when the portion, this is underlying all the goodness of affection. When he talks about how uh, the black mammy figure would provide the best way for uh, young white children to practice, refine their sexual hostility and other types of aggression. I think that is exactly the case. Uh, and that's the way that we should read even things like Shirley Temple, uh, who passed away. Folks, remember the little white girl? She was in all the black and white uh, films. This was a long time ago. Uh, but she died recently. I think she was like 80 when I say recently, like within the last year or two uh, or so. But she had all of those films where I think she would be like six, seven, and she would be dancing. I think one of the black male characters was Mr. Bojangles. And they'd have all these other people that she would come out and do these dance numbers and things. It's the same thing. Uh, even though I'm a white child, I'm relating to you at best, Nigra, as though you are a child. And I might be six, I might be five, I might be four, but I'm white. I'm in charge. You're just a nigger. Don't forget that. Uh, and I'm learning right now. Four, five, six. I'm learning right now what my role is and what your role is and what I'm supposed to do, how I'm going to carry it out, how I'm going to stomp on you for the next 70, 80 years, however long I'm hanging out on the planet. I think that's really, really important. And then he, he goes right in the next paragraph where he says, uh, oh, yeah, you all already talked about the nursery. I talked about that uh, during the, after the first audio segment. Uh, there's tons of examples of these. I picked out, uh, I think Roz, he picked the Irritated Genie where he talked about this. I picked the fictional account many times over uh, where that, and I think it is correct to think about that, even the wet nursing in a sexual manner, particularly taking uh, Valerie Jackson's plantation where she talks about a grown, not a white child, a grown white woman engaging in this behavior that is sexualized, uh, even that, uh, because it was not like these black females, enslaved black females, they weren't volunteering for this duty. Uh, that's a part of being exploited and violated as an enslaved black person, uh, that they can demand that you go and wet nurse uh, their little racist children. Uh, so I think it's correct to think about that in a sexual uh, context, even the wet nursing. Uh, next, I thought the whole uh, portion where it describes what happens uh, with Miss Fanny uh, purchasing, uh, this is from Harriet Jacobs' autobiography, uh, the older black female purchasing her, and I just, it, it almost sounded like we were going to good white person from Miss Fanny because she makes this purchase to, to do right uh, with this. Uh, situation uh, since she saved up all this money uh, from Aunt Marthy and then they're going to sell her off and that's that's just not the case at all that's <laughs> just this is this could be another form of consumption uh, in a way you know she has we have uh, consumed this nigra for the last you know 70 50 years however old she is we have consumed her for all these decades uh, you know, we might as well finish pecking the bones on um, the last few days that she have. That's just the way that I have to look at this. I mean, what I don't even know how to conceptualize what a quote unquote good white person would be 
in this environment. It would have to be a hell of a lot more than, oh, well, I'll buy you for $50. I mean, that is absurd. Um, that's about as bad as the gender fluidity, I think, that we talked about before and not making sense. The portion... Ladylike, indeed. The next portion where she says... Uh, I have no, and it's the same thing. I have no doubt that Mrs. Flint's mother cared deeply for Aunt Marthy. I, I don't even know how to process that. Like my brain is just saying invalid input, invalid input. I don't even know what that means. Uh, based on what? <laughs> I mean, even 2017, what evidence is there that any white person that ever existed, any individual who has ever classified themselves as white, quote unquote, cares deeply for any black person? Based on what? Uh, I just think we get lulled into that sort of uh, sentimentality and rhetoric and emotionalism on a regular basis when we're looking at a problem that, you know, we should just be logical and just moving down the board. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah, that whole this whole paragraph, I should have read the rest of what I highlighted. I have no doubt that Mrs. Flint's mother cared deeply for Aunt Marthy. Neither do I doubt the affections of the larger white community whom she supplied with crackers and preserves and who respected her intelligence and good character. That. Uh, that is just absurd. Again, uh, this is uh, this is a nigra, as I said, that we've enjoyed uh, consuming. We have developed a particular taste for this nigra around here, and we'll you know keep her around until she's you know dead, and then we'll probably continue gnawing on her corpse at that point as well. Um, and I just thought this whole scene about white people being shocked about seeing her on the auction box. Like, are you kidding? I just read uh, someone put it on my Facebook page. Uh, Facebook page. They had uh, an auction where I think it was about 650 black people were auctioned all at once. What are we talking about? This went on uh, for centuries. <laughs> the, this era of white supremacy and this form of enslavement, it went on for centuries. What are you talking about? White people are shocked. It's not like this is something you just woke up one day or just read it in this text. This has been going on for years. I just think that's nonsense, and we engage in a lot of that cutting whites a lot of slack. Even whites that have been dead for 200 years, cutting them a lot of slack and uh, at times uh, making this sound a lot less uh, callous and despicable as it relates to whites specifically uh, as it really is. Um, next. Hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of us coming back to this notion of good whites, whatever that means, and that tying into their consumption, uh, their hunger for black people. I just, uh, and it could be a phrasing uh, issue, but that just seems like a lot of the typical uh, grooming, brain trashing that black people experience, victims of racism experience. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, the, the portion where. Uh, talks about this ruse uh, where one of the whites writes a letter to Harriet Jacobs pretending to get her to try to come back uh, to the plantation and talking about, oh, man, we've had such a, a time, everybody uh, being around the bedside. This person is about to die. And, you know, oh, uh, it's Harriet Jacobs dying on. And, and, oh, we're all around the bedside. And everyone is just uh, in having such compassion and warmth and all the niggers and white people together. I mean, it's just nonsense. It seemed like it was quite a bit of that uh, in this uh, section. But I thought that uh, that portion specifically in this letter just shows the cunning of whites. Uh, to try just anything and again to play on our emotions to get us to make silly decisions under the system of racism white supremacy that standard you really got to be careful about uh, being manipulated emotionally with things um, 
And I thought it, it kind of ended with a lot more of the uh, what I would term the, the contempt for gender that seems to be in full force in 2017, 21st century. Uh, this notion where he says, I think that we need to begin from an implied zero ground, the unstable sex, gender and corpor- corporeality of the slave in the context of Jacob's slave narrative. The Flint's gender fluidity rests upon the bedrock of gender and sex presumptions attributed to the body and person of the slave. And then he goes on, he he even calls people, I guess, like Luke and what have you, saying that they are black male uh, mammies who service white men on the plantation and during the Reconstruction era. Uh, I, as I think some of the other folks have said, I just do not think that that is an accurate uh, way of processing what we're talking about here, certainly VGQ. uh, But if we're talking about an uh, an environment where we have a dominant power relationship between the individuals who say they're white and non-white people and those whites can go around and do anything and are saying well you are going to perform all manner of sexual depravity and you're going to do it right now or i'm going to kill or matter of fact i might not even kill you i might torture you i might quarter you as was talked about before i might get you know a hot iron and you know cut off parts of your body i might torture you for the next month or so depends on how i feel depends on what i want to do uh but if you want to avoid that, whatever I can think of in my pathological mind, then, you know, this is what's going to happen. You know, I'm going to rape you or you know, I might rape your daughter or whatever, all of you, whole family. Uh, I think that's very different when you're in that sort of environment. And again, where consent is gone, that's that's huge. We talked about on th- that on this program before. Consent anytime where I don't even have consent, anytime where I am in an environment where I'm not free uh, where I am burdened heavily uh, by coercion to do things uh, under threat of starvation or lethal force, uh, that changes everything in terms of how we process this. And, and when we start getting into, well, maybe uh, Luke had some sort of uh, homosexual tendencies. Maybe that was a part of his fluid sexual identity. It's just like, are you serious? That just, it's, it's, it's absurd. Uh, and in my view, it is not in any way accurately processing what we're talking about uh in my view even if even if luke and and i appreciate what emmy pointed out as well it's not about demonizing uh any black people that are engaged in these behaviors what they call homosexual activity lgbtq it's not about that at all it's just about understanding in my view the dot context is a word that has been mentioned a lot in this text name of this program that the dominant aspect of what's controlling behavior frequently, particularly as it relates to black people worldwide for the last 500 years, the dominant thing when you start talking about behavior is the context in which that behavior is occurring. That is super important. That's been pointed out a lot in this book, and I have no idea how it is uh, kind of moved to the side or minimized when we get to this point to start evaluating uh, Luke's sexual behaviors. The dominant theme is racism, white supremacy, whites with a lash, dictating whether you eat, whether you have clothes, whether your family is sold, whether you are sold, whether you live or die. That is the dominant context, not, you know, however he identifies sexually, which, too, is shaped uh, shaped and crafted by the system context of white supremacy. I'll stop there. There were a few other things that uh, stood out, but that is certainly why I did have a lot of other notes from this week. But that's enough uh, for that is enough for one week. Um, And we did our three hours, too. Folks will have to uh, 
make time for next week. I think we should have uh, three sessions left in the book. Again, we're starting on Chapter 5 next week. Uh, if you have questions, if something was not clear, uh, if you have trouble finding something in the archives, if you just have commentary that you want to make sure we share uh, before the conclusion of The Delectable Negro, drop us an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com hope it has been a constructive investment of your friday evening and thanks to all for tuning in to and participating in the book club we'll be here tomorrow for the compensatory call-in 9 p.m eastern 8 p.m central 6 p.m pacific uh, we'll catch up on what has taken place over the last seven days uh, if you have suggestions counter racist ideas tune in we'll be looking forward to hearing from folks uh, in about 24 hours uh with that sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy i know it's the weekend if you're going to be out and about i don't know where you are it's getting warmer here so people might want to be going out and doing more i would just keep in mind uh under systems of under the system of white supremacy got to be codified if you are not going to remain sober definitely have a code you do not want to be out in a vehicle out over the weekend messing around particularly in the evening and get stopped and have that be the day that you come in contact with daniel holtzclaw darren wilson any of these other race soldiers badge or no the evidence has overwhelmingly demonstrated us being under the influence generally makes it much 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 easier for racist man, racist woman, racist child to terrorize us at will. No evidence that I've seen has shown that us having a little alcohol, a little tobacco, whatever else it is, is going to help our brain computer crank out solutions to the problem, white supremacy. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother you a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.